VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, January the 20th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's producing this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So we're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And, of course, you're all aware of the weekend forecast for people on the Avalon Peninsula, depending on where exactly you live on the Avalon Peninsula or where you're planning on traveling. Forecast has been amped up to maybe as much as 45 centimeters of snow in the higher elevations. And again, I'm not a meteorologist. I don't know exactly what's coming. But it's probably a really good idea to carefully navigate your travel plans today, if, if at all possible, to get out a little bit earlier. Get where you're going before it gets a little bit worse later on this evening. Because when the winds kick in at 70 kilometers per hour, obviously, if we get that wind and the forecasted snow, there's a mess Coming. Hopefully it's not too messy for folks who are interested in getting down to Mary Brown Center tonight for the Newfoundland Rogues home opener. They played tonight, the tip-off at 7. They got the Rally Firebirds in town. So, And young Ron Artest Jr. has signed with the Rogues. Of course, his father, pretty famous NBA player. Not to say that young Artest is going to be what his father was so far as caliber goes, but a big name in the lineup for the Rogues, and there you go. All right, very quietly... Dawson Mercer from Bay Roberts, New Jersey Devil Forward, is having a pretty solid year. He's picking up points game after game. He's got 28 points, 10 goals, 18 assists in the 45 games he's played so far this year. So really solid stuff. Last year he had 42 points, so it's looking good to uh, break that number in his second year in the National Hockey League. What's also extremely impressive about Mercer is that since he laced him up for the first regular season game last year, 127 games later, he hasn't missed a single game. So his reliability is a big deal. He's the only devil of player that's played in all 127 games since the beginning of last regular season. Another quick hockey note. Today in 1989, Mario Lemieux, number 66, became the second player in the NHL to score 50 goals in less than 50 games. He got his 50th in a loss, I think, in Winnipeg uh, in his 44th game of the year. And, of course... The great one, Gretzky holds the record, 50 goals in 39 games. Will that ever be touched? All right, let's move to the small screen. You know, the way television has been produced and the streaming services have really made a big change in the last decade, I would suggest. And a lot of great TV out there. It was 15 years ago today that Breaking Bad premiered on AMC. Created by Vince Gilligan and, of course, starring Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul and others. It has been widely considered one of the greatest TV series of all time. I don't know, what you, did you like it, Dave? Did you watch it? You know what? What's interesting about that? I just saw this this morning. I'm in the midst of a rewatch of Breaking Bad at this moment in time, just picking off an episode every now and then. So 16 Primetime Emmy Awards, 8 Satellite Awards, 2 Golden Globe Awards, 2 Peabody Awards, 2 Critics' Choice Awards, and 4 Television Critics Association Awards. And, of course, Cranston won an outstanding lead actor in a drama series some four times. So a pretty cool series, although kind of romanticizes <laughs> a lot of crime and the drug trade, but... Anywho, and also very interestingly, and we still operate with this form of parliament here in this country. It was to this date, uh, in 1265, the English parliament met for the very first time in the Palace of Westminster. Now, of course, known as the House of Parliament, 1265. Okay, let's go. So there's been some, I mean, for a long time, Muskrat Falls dominated the conversation. And this show was peppered with Muskrat talk all the time, and rightfully so. 
And now, lo and behold, we know all the issues surrounding the Labrador Island link and the synchronous condensers at Soldier's Pond. And I've seen some pictures in the recent past of some of the towers and the heavy ice load. And for the third time since December, transmission wires have fell to the ground for a variety of reasons. And Hydro's not even sure what's going on. So they've had a 72-kilometer uh, access road cleared. Crews are in trying to figure out exactly what's going on. They're pointing to one key area, and that's what one of the rigging devices called a turnbuckle. So basically, every 20 towers, it comes to a dead end where they uh, put these turnbuckles in place to try to secure the towers. Now think back. There was all kinds of conversation about the robust nature of the transmission lines anyway. So 1,100 kilometers from Muskrat to Soldier's Pond, and especially inside the Long Range Mountains, where access and the remote location, the ro pardon me, the remote nature, makes for serious complications. Liberty Consulting has warned us that any issues inside some of these remote areas or on the Labrador Island link could lead to extended blackouts and rolling brownouts. So they're out there trying to figure out, they're going to have to do some chemical analysis as to whether or not these turnbuckles stand up to the icy conditions. There's three separate sections which have seen that type of damage. And again, it wasn't just about the robust nature of being able to withstand one in a hundred year storms or weather events, but it also went back to there was some concern about not only the wire that was used initially, but some of the faulty erection of some of these massive towers. And now here we are having to go through the tests of the Labrador Island link, and they are routinely transmitting some 300 megawatts over that link for use in this province, and of course, to uh, transmit some of that power because of our contractual obligation across the maritime link to the folks in Nova Scotia. But, you know, Muskrat was as much a transmission project as it was a dam project. You know, even inside the initial cost, a lot of it was for transmission. So we've exceeded well in excess of $4 billion at this moment in time to deal with transmission, and we are seemingly not really any closer to having solved some of the issues plaguing the entirety of the project. Now, we'll go on to be told that it's not uncommon for some of these snags to be encountered. Really? It's not uncommon for this volume of snags to be encountered? But this is a big one. They don't even know what the fix is, how to resolve this particular problem, and, of course, no matter what it is, I mean, it could be a potential small fix with different turnbuckles to be installed. But if we're unable to see these towers withstand the heavy ice load in some of these uh, sections that are prone to ice storms, we could be looking at another whopping big price tag and yet another delay in whatever's going to eventually become of that project. It's truly amazing stuff. And then, you know, there was some conversation about it yesterday, and the national press are picking up on comments coming from Quebec Premier Legault regarding the pending negotiations with this province, basically on the 2041 ex expiration of the contract. So we have some leverage in this one. Now, people will say that we shouldn't be dealing with Hydro-Quebec anyway, you know, that they cannot be trusted, they negotiate in bad faith, and a lot of that might exact absolutely be true. The fact of the matter is, we don't really have much in the way of options because they're also a signatory to that contract for power that began to flow in 1971. And, of course, 2041 is just around the corner, realistically speaking. So 15% of the power that Hydro-Quebec uses, of course, they get it for pennies on the dollar. 15% is relying on Churchill Falls. So they need to understand what 2041 is going to look like as much as we do. So where does our leverage actually lie? Because they, you know, Hydro-Quebec is talking about, talking about building additional dams, the plan B, so, so to speak. So is that Gull Island? Like, what is it? So Premier Legault says, unless he has a plan B, 
to bring to negotiations. He doesn't want to be subjected to whatever tariff or levy that this province will bring forward regarding 2041. What's our plan B? You know, where are we? I know that there's the concerns of today are right in front of us that we need to grapple with, and God only knows I talk about it all the time. But this is something that we have to get right and have to be prepared. We know that we're going up against a formidable, quote-unquote, opponent, hard to consider the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec a potential partner, even though that would be great if there was mutually beneficial contractual uh, negotiations to take place. But we've got to stand pretty firm with this stuff because we're going to need to make off way better than we have with the existing contract. And it's, of course, lots of complications inside it. And I don't pretend to know the ins and outs of every moving part of the 2041 issue. And thankfully, there's a committee struck with some good people on it to try to help us paint a much clearer picture about what it means. But the province of Quebec are now out there speaking quite openly, and I would suggest quite forcefully, about what these negotiations look like. But if you want to tackle it from any of those angles... We can do it, but man, those transmission line walls and the towers and the turnbuckles, enough to turn your stomach some, in some regard. Okay, let's keep going. So two potential impactful strikes are looming. So as of noon today, we may indeed see some 100 paramedics represented by the Teamsters go on a work-to-rule job action. So we've spoken to Hubert Daw, the business manager, representing those uh, people, and this is a massive problem. But it gets a little bit more confusing for me. Of course, there are issues regarding rate of pay and pension and what have you. And we're losing paramedics, and we can't afford to lose any more. But then you hear from, like, for instance, Wade Smith, who operates Smith's Ambulance Services out of Whitburn. And he says any pending job action might indeed put a further strain on the system. His resources wouldn't be able to pick up much of the slack because they're working as hard as we all know they are. But then it gets, I think, a little bit ridiculous when you hear comments come from government such as, well, you know, we can indeed initiate or to activate some resources from the regional health authorities. Okay, but what does that mean? Does it mean we have some back pocket paramedics that nobody knows about? I mean, if we had additional resources to be ambulance operators, paramedics, dispatchers, wouldn't we already have utilized them because the system is so strained and the paramedics are burnt out? So... Government can tell us all they like that they may be able to backfill some of these potential job action impacts with activation of whoever from wherever. But who are these people? I think paramedics around the province are scratching their head thinking, wait now, so you're telling me that there's more resources that have not been put on the front lines to ease the concerns for paramedics, whether they be represented by the Teamsters and or working for the regional health authorities. But anyway, and all those seven units are... Uh, managed by one person, that's Bob Fuhr. Mr. Fuhr has refused, as far as I can tell, to speak with any media outlet about their side of this conversation. But we'll know, it's, I guess at some point mid-morning here, maybe 10.30, I think we can anticipate a call from Hubert Daw because they're going to make their determination at that point as to whether or not to initiate this phase one of a work-to-rule job action and what that will look like. The other strike that's looming is at Memorial University and the Faculty Association representing some 800 members. So that's the decision that's going to take place, place next week. <coughs> a couple of questions. So the Faculty Association is the big stalling point here is, of course, on pay in the first year. They're looking for retro pay back to September, and over the course of the contract, some 14%, maybe 8% in the first year. Government, pardon me, the university not offering 
nowhere near that. Apparently, they've made some inroads. The university has been talking with the government because they're operating on the provincial government template for rates of pay and rate of pay increases. Uh, okay. So we all know that there's no room to wiggle on tuitions anymore. I mean, the immediate more than doubling of tuitions has obviously been a concern for many, and justifiably so. So I don't know what wiggle room looks like, but if, if there's such a thing as a provincial government template for pay raises, then why has it been so different across the different bargaining units, regardless of who we're talking about, QP or NAEP or the paramedics, and yes, the faculty association? You know, we don't align increased rates of pay and contra uh, contracts, for instance, with healthcare professionals. We've managed somehow to negotiate new contracts with increases way in excess of 2%. So where does that put Munn's Faculty Association in the hierarchy of importance and their contribution to the province and how meaningful it is? I mean, our long-term success is going to weigh in large part about the quality of the K-12 education system and absolutely post-secondary, including Memorial University. So I get their concerns with the double standard between tenure track and term employees, term instructors, pardon me. I get all of that. And even the offer now, nowhere near inflation, you know, but they're not the only people who haven't had a raise. They say they haven't had a raise in six years. Fair enough. I don't think there's been a raise in this building for six years either. So, you know, that worry, I don't know how meaningful that is to the general public, but what does an interruption of course offerings at Mon really look like? The deadline for students to drop courses has come and gone. So there's a bunch of complications here. The student union is in full support of the faculty association, which is interesting. Because they're the body that will be impacted the most if the lecturers, instructors, uh, uh, tenure track uh, instructors, professors go on strike. But of course, they're completely opposed to administration and the growth of administration and the behavior and the policies coming from administration. So I'm not surprised they're on side with the faculty association. But what does this mean if there's a long-term loss of instruction for timetables set for graduation? And some of the plans that people absolutely have in place, what the, will the impact look like there? And if I was unable to drop a course and then get the refund, and this extends for whatever period of time, which jeopardizes the entire course load for the term, the semester, what does that mean? Are they going to be able to get some money back? Nobody knows any of this, but that strike could have some major impact as well. And so if you're a student, instructor, parent of, or friend of, and you want to talk about either the paramedics action, which we'll find out more mid-morning, and or, of course, what hap what's happening at Mon? let's do it. See, Central Health had some success. No, we remember the story regarding a gentleman named Dr. Maiden. That's how he's affectionately known. I can't pronounce his surname. It's Mary Appen, I believe. So he's now going to be staying at the Beta Spirit Community Health Center in St. Albans in, on a permanent basis, and that's long been the hope. But they've also managed to add another couple of doctors, Dr. Robert Jong and Dr. Zachary Price. They're also going to be practicing out of the Conagra Peninsula Health Center in Harbor Brighton on a part-time basis until June. So some positive moves there. And, of course, inside that world of recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals, there are no end to the types of conversations we can have there. You want to take it on? Let's go. Quickly in K-12, if you know anything about what went on out in Whitless Bay with whoever the little nuisances are that broke into St. Bernard's Elementary, they broke 33 windows. They set off and emptied a bunch of fire extinguishers. The school remains closed today. so And that happened Wednesday night. I mean, that interruption is just brutal. And that's a pretty significant amount of vandalism that took place there. But the school remains closed today as they try to repair the windows and clean up after whoever did that stuff. All right.
this is a couple of, uh, I think, maybe off the beaten track conversations, but part of it. Okay. So when the pandemic struck and where we worked and how we worked changed. And for so many people, they're still working remotely. And for many, they're having no problems with it. Some of the people that I know, my friends who continue to work from home, they're loving it. And their productivity has been good. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to measure how effective an employee is. So now the whole concept being bandied about is what they're calling time theft. It's whether when you're on the clock at home, whether or not you're actually doing your work or you're attending to household duties or you're going shopping or doing whatever you're doing. So that's the old school thought of the only way to measure whether or not you've been effective is for hours worked, time on the clock. When, I mean, I don't manage anybody, but, you know, Canada's had a productivity issue for decades. Isn't a more realistic measure whether or not you're hitting your assigned targets, whether or not you are being productive? Because it's one thing to, you know, take the opportunity to do some laundry while you're on the clock, but if you're getting all your work done, because let's not kid ourselves, people who are working in the office setting can find lots of ways to daydream and to not be working their fingers to the bone for every single second around the clock in the office. So now we're talking about time theft as if this isn't some sort of new thing with the concept of working remotely. And I hear lots of wild complaints coming from PSAC, the union representing a lot of the federal government employees, about the fact they're now being mandated to get back into the office. You know, on some sort of chaotic hybrid model, I think the most, the vast majority of people in the country think that, you know, being in the office is critical. And it's the only way to act and to behave as a public servant. Get in there, do your job. Now, the public service has added a ton of jobs since the liberals took power. I mean, a ton. And when they pat themselves on the back for job creation, it's really misleading. You know, some 85 to 87 percent of the jobs that have been created in this country in the last two and a half years have been in the public sector, which basically equates to just putting ads in the paper or putting a posting on Career Beacon. So, you know, it's hard to fall for those numbers and take them at face value. And then you add in how many people have actually left the uh, labor search workforce. So if you're not even looking anymore, we don't even count you in the employment numbers or the unemployment numbers. But time theft, federal public servants back into the office, even though it's confusing, you know, shared spaces and all that disorganization what comes with the newfangled approach. Maybe that works in Silicon Valley in a creative atmosphere, but maybe not so much for the public sector. And let me throw out the four-day work week. I love that conversation. All right. Quick reminder about the fact that there is a benefit concert, uh, a partnership that was struck between Bridges to Hope and Music NL in an effort to try to raise the additional monies required because there's going to be another massive uptick in the numbers of people going through the doors at food banks. Unbelievably so. Anyway, it's going to be at Gower Street United Church on the 16th of March. Great lineup. Alan Doyle, Rachel Cousins, Kelly McMichael, Nick Earl. You can buy your tickets right now at the Bridges to Hope website. Let's hope that's a massive su- uh, success because Jody Williams, the manager down there, thinks that they're going to need an additional $70,000 to be able to help and to serve what they think might be a 30% increase of people coming through the door. So that's really something. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a good one. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board. Line number one. Good morning, Bruno. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing, Bruno? Oh, not too bad. I was... <laughs> uh, it's almost to the point where it's hard even to laugh at what's going on with... Uh, 
that transmission, those transmission towers from Muskrat Falls. Sure. Just before we get into that, Bruno, just based on an email you sent me yesterday, you know, we were talking about smoking cessation week and what the uh, alcohol business can learn from the labeling struggles that the tobacco industry faced, or pardon me, the tobacco, anti-tobacco lobbyists went through for all these decades. 1963, then Minister of National Health, Judy LaMarche, declared smoking causes lung cancer in the House of Commons, the first leader to do so. You sent me a follow-up note regarding the irony of that statement. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember Judy. She was a very uh, flamboyant, uh, one of the first female ministers, pretty strident, uh, and uh, uh, she made no, she was a chain smoker that smoked between two and three packs of cigarettes a day. So the irony of her coming out uh, and uh, knowing that uh, smoking cigarettes caused uh, cancer and having the courage to come out and state that plainly despite her human feelings with the, the evil weed was quite surprising. It, it kind of is. Uh, add to that, I was told yesterday that the Canadian Coast Guard actually recently required a shallow draft light icebreaker to serve the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River. It's being named the Judy LaMarche. <laughs> all of that came together all in one fell swoop uh, yesterday, so that's interesting. Okay, let's get back to the transmission lines. Go ahead. Well, just, uh, it, it, it's tragic comedy that doesn't even do it justice, uh, but it's time that some serious investigation and charges were laid on the clear incompetence on the design and execution of that project, both the transmission towers, the software, uh, on and on. We've been through that before. And I think it's time that we stop shrugging our shoulders and saying, oh, well, and putting the burden on the helpless ratepayer and taxpayer ultimately and uh, did something constructive about it. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about something that I came across yesterday that um, bears um, on the uh, hydrogen project that's undergoing. And uh, it's about um, a new development in uh, basically uh, in an artificial photosynthetic device using um, uh, for, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, they've uh, reduced the, uh, increased the efficiency by a, a tenfold in uh, dealing uh, with the uh, the what are the conductors that are, are that are splitting hydrogen and oxygen? Uh, okay, so I think you're talking about uh, an article that I follow this organization because sometimes very interesting articles. It's called InsideClimateNews.org, and this is about a project I believe in Texas. They're going to use uh, 
when to make fuel out of water as opposed to the current project that we're talking about here, whether it be for domestic use or conversion for with ammonia for transport. So they're moving right back to water, no ammonia, which, of course, will increase or will decrease the energy loss that we're talking about with the ammonia component of transmi- or transporting green hydrogen. Is that what you're talking about? Um, that's part of it. But th- these are uh, devices that uh, do two things. They uh, First is the ability to concentrate the sunlight without destroying the semiconductor that harnesses the light, which has been a problem to date. When you increase the intensity of the sunlight, the, uh, the semiconductor breaks down, but they found a, that, a way around it. And uh, the second thing it does is it uses both the higher energy part to split the uh, hydrogen and oxygen and the lower energy part uh, to produce heat, which is encourages uh, the reaction so that it increases the efficiency of this reaction. So they've made a tenfold um, increase in the efficiency of these basically artificial photosynthetic devices, which almost seems hard to believe that in the lab they're uh, produced something that they think is more efficient than uh, what happens uh, in nature. But in any case, it points to the fact that uh, when you've got technologies like this being developed, the advantages are obvious. Uh, When you don't need to uh, produce um, the uh, uh, not methane. What am I trying to say? I'm not 100 percent sure. But on that one, you know, with the green hydrogen, the biggest concern I would imagine for most people in this province is backstops that the province needs to put in place, whether it be lease programs for Crown land, trying to structure some sort of royalty regime, protecting ourselves from keeping our money out of. Because what, if green hydrogen, the way that Mr. Risley and World Energy GH2 propose it, that's sort of their issue, their concern, not really mine, because I'm not the customer. My money's not in it. I know they're going to avail us some federal pockets of money, but as long as that business issue or hurdle is between World Energy GH2 and the rent customer in Germany, I don't think a whole lot of people here are worried about the business model. We want to protect crown well, lands and try to get something out of this. Yeah, well, I understand your point. But even if there's not, none of your money is going into it, the opportunity is going down the drain uh, with, these, with these guys that may or may not be able to uh, successfully compete with, for instance, these new artificial um, photosynthetic devices that are being developed so that you don't need to um, make the conversion and then back again once you uh, do it, it's much more direct. And uh, if you can concentrate the sunlight uh, without destroying the semiconductor, which has been the problem in the past, um, this device uh, is sort of self-healing from the sounds of it so that uh, it gets around that problem as well. So it's a much more direct way of producing the hydrogen, the green hydrogen, without uh, conversion uh, into ammonia and then back again. So obviously each of those steps 
decreases okay. the overall efficiency and increases the cost. All right. Did you want to say anything about the transmission lines quickly before I go? Or no, just, just the summary just points you've already made? Yeah, the, the, the problems just keep mounting, you know. Uh, the, uh, the vibrations at Soldier's Pond are still a very serious problem that has, That's to right. be, uh, has to be dealt with. The transmission lines getting the power into the Avalon still hasn't been solved. And you've raised the point, and you know, I'll have to concur. Just how much money uh, will you throw at, at the project? How much good money will you throw after uh, a project that increasingly shows its bad side? Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I don't know where that lies. And you know what's even more frustrating is that Hydro doesn't even know what's causing this, these problems. I mean, at this stage... And this is not the first winter those towers have been erected to not know why these turnbuckles are failing because there was initial problems with the uh, construction and the uh, erection of these towers and even the transmission wire used initially. So, I mean, this has been never-ending, never-ending issue plaguing that project from day one. Just but, maddening but stuff. Under, Very it, quickly, it, Bruno, it, before I have to it go. All go ahead. Comes down, it all comes down to the under-design that happened because they were trying uh, to keep it within this imaginary budget that they were trying to keep the project in. And as a result, they've underdesigned every component of the thing. And that's why it's all failing. And that's why I think you've got to demand and get to the bottom of it and uh, have some accountability for the for, from the principles that made those decisions, and it goes up pretty high, which I think is why there's a reluctance to get down to it. But isn't it time? Well, isn't it time to to put the finger where blame belongs? I think the LeBlanc inquiry did a pretty good job of that. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I guess so. But you know, you still got these problems with. Yes, yes, we know that. We know. The, tur the turnbuckles are, you know, they're under-designed. The towers are under-designed. You know, um, driving uh, uh, back uh, and forth to Labrador and seeing those 735 kilowatt towers and the size of them, they're monstrous. They, You know, they're gigantic. Uh, yeah, I've seen some scale photographs of them. They are. They're absolutely massive. There's no doubt. All right, Bruno, I'm late for the break. I appreciate the call. Hope you're doing okay. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take that break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Uh, welcome back to the show. And as you know, try to read a few emails during the breaks. And someone asked, you know, why have I let the outer battery light thing go? Look, I mean, certainly anything is up for discussion here on the program, and I don't think I've let it go. I'm not sure where the conversation goes. My biggest worry, and I think a lot of people's worry, is not only for the frustration that the residents in the outer battery feel, but how this ends. With the city seemingly unwilling to do anything about it, even if the mayor says, Mayor Danny Breen says, you know, as opposed to one amendment to deal with one issue, they'd like to see a modernization of the City Act to, in full. 
I don't know why it has to be one or the other. Can't we just do something now? Because as we saw when the city council decided not to accept the motion that was put forward, and all members of council, including the War II councillor Ophelia Ravencroft, they all voted against it. Uh, doctor, oh, pardon, doctor. Deputy Mayor Sheila O'Leary only wanted to vote in favor of doing something about it. You know, even the MHA for the area, John Abbott, who I think we're expecting to come on the program to talk as a cabinet minister, not necessarily about this unless he cares to chime in. So, look, if you want to talk about that, that's absolutely up for debate here on the program. But the big question is, where does this end? When council said they're not going to do anything about it, what was the immediate reaction of the fellow in the battery? Put up some more lights. So, I don't know. If you want to take it on, more than welcome to join us here on the program this morning. Will I take that on one, Dave, or what's the uh, conversation here? Let's keep this going. Okay, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Essie. You're on the air. Yes, uh, Paddy Daly. Yes, ma'am. You're doing an excellent job. (laughs) Thanks. I love your program. I don't watch soap operas anymore. <laughs> I I just can't wait to hear you get on, right? Well, I appreciate that. What soap operas did you watch? Pardon? What soap operas did you watch when you were watching the soaps, the stories? Not many of them. I yeah, don't okay. like them, right? <laughs> I like the real thing, right? Yeah, oh, me too. Uh, growing up, of course, it was just on. Around supper time, getting supper ready, and supper time itself, another world in general hospital all the time. <laughs> Well, anyway, my love, keep up the good work. Thank you. What's on your mind this morning? No, I just thought... Or is that it? Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to say to you, you're doing an excellent job. Thanks, Essie. I appreciate the kind words and hopefully have a nice weekend. What part of the province are you calling from? St. John's. Oh, you're calling from town, so a bit of snow coming tonight. Yeah, I heard. Yeah, hopefully it's not as bad as it sounds, but of course the big storm last week never manifested itself, so I won't be disappointed if it's far less than that 45 centimeters we're talking about. But the only thing is, boy, you know, you don't know what to expect good weather today. That's it. You're right. You know, but anyway, my darling, you keep up the good work. I love your program. I truly do. <laughs> You're sweet. Thanks a lot, Essie. Okay, you have a nice day. The and same stay to you. safe. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, there you go. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to local author and member, committee member of the Sparks Literary Festival. That's Heidi Wicks. Good morning, Heidi. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm not too bad. Thank you for asking. <laughs> well, now I hear you uh, on the airwaves every now and then talking about what we see on the small screen in the form of TV show, streaming or otherwise, and series that you like. I don't want to derail getting into the literary festival, but just curiously, <laughs> 15 years ago today, in 2008, B- Breaking Bad premiered on AMC. Did you watch it? Did you like it? Oh, yeah. I was all over the Breaking Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine 15 years ago. Time absolutely flies. It really does, doesn't it? it that, that it does, yeah. So I, I like talking about a bit of TV, but let's talk about the Literary Festival. What exactly is the Sparks Literary Festival? Is this new? Because I can't recall hearing about it. No, my goodness, Patty, it's not new. Okay. It's been 13 years, I think. It, okay. It was set in 2009 by Mary Dalton uh, in the English department, poet and professor. Uh, so she was the festival's director for the first six years. Um, so it's organized, it continues to come out of Memorial's Department of English. Uh, the organizers this year are uh, Nancy Pedry, who's head of the English department, and Lisa Moore, who everybody in the literary world knows. Uh, so we've been on hold now since 2019. Um, I don't know if you remember a few years ago we had something called Snowmageddon. I recall. So that's the last time that the Sparks uh, festival was due to happen uh, in real life in person um, but yeah the the group is very eager to see it come back 
we do have some weather coming. Um, we remain optimistic and very hopeful that uh, we can go ahead on Sunday. I think things are supposed to taper off. So we've got our fingers and toes crossed. Is it strictly focused, uh, strictly focused on Newfoundland and Labrador writings? No, uh, we do have four panels. Uh, we get going at 10 o'clock, uh, so there's greetings and welcomes. The festival this year is dedicated to Stan Dragland, uh, who sadly passed away in 2022. He's a very well-known Canadian author. He has uh, mentored and edited um, many, many uh, authors here and all over the country. He's beloved, uh, brilliant scholar, cultural critic, uh, uh, he was at Spark Festival a number of times, so uh, Lisa Moore will give a dedication, a tribute to Stan at the beginning. Uh, up ne- next, we've got a theater panel, and that is moderated by Megan Greeley. Uh, it features Santiago Guzman, uh, Bernice Morgan, and Dave Sullivan. Uh, then we've got a coffee break, and then we've got a visiting Irish writer, uh, I'm McBride. Uh, that panel is mon- moderated by Angela Antle. Then we've got a lunch break, and then we've got a comics panel that's moderated by Andrew Hawthorne, uh, and that features Kate Beaton, who is a number one New York Times bestselling author, and her book, Ducks, uh, has been endorsed by Obama. So we're looking forward to welcoming her. Then we've got uh, another break and a book signing, and then we've got another panel, which features local authors, uh, Jim McEwen, Sally Cunningham, Diane Carley, and Dolores Mullins. And then we've got one last break. And then we've got a fifth panel uh, featuring Christina Anstock, Julia Late, Sheila O'Neill, and Michelle Joe, as well as Morgan Murray. And then we're wrapping up the day at 5.30, 6 o'clock with closing comments, good wishes, book signings, and all that great stuff. So we've got a full day of great discussions and questions and answers and mingling and mixing and all that great stuff that we've missed so much over the last couple of years. It's been difficult. Uh, you said Stan Dragland, right? Yes. Okay, because I actually read uh, what was called Hard-Headed, Big-Hearted um, mm-hmm. about Newfoundland Labrador writing, and I have a book on my shelf that I have not cracked as of yet, though, a bio of Gerald Squires by Stan Dragland, which is... Mm-hmm going to be read at some point in the future. So these literary festivals, not only a chance for authors and publishers and what have you to be in the same room, to share ideas, to talk about the future, or some of the works that they've enjoyed, what are some of the goals that you set for outcomes of these festivals? Because in other arenas, you know, there's some targets, whether it be at Music and L events where they hope to have X number of buyers in the room and maybe strike some contracts. What's the hopes of coming into a literary festival? Well, the, the things that come out of these uh, in-person meet and greets are, you know, magic. Like you can't replicate it online or on, in other ways. Uh, the conversations that happen between established authors, you know, you've got a range there from Bernice Morgan uh, to to newer authors, students. You know, there's a student moderating one of the panels. So this this collision of people at all different points of their career. Is really magical. So, you know, you just don't know. Publication deals can come out of this, uh, you know, introductions, collaborations, all of this collision space is really invaluable. No question. You know, Bernice Morgan, most people would be familiar with Random Passage. But, of course, her collection of works is extensive, to say the very least. You know, in the world of arts, whether it be with 
actors or comedians or writers or producers and directors, anything inside the arts envelope, we really punch above our weight. But I'm not so sure that many people pay attention to the fact that we are amongst the Canadian leaders in writing novels, whether it be fiction or nonfiction or what have you. We really have produced some extraordinary writers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, all of the, our arts, uh, you know, literary, literary arts, uh, film, music, uh, visual arts, all of it. Like we, I think we are actually known for the, the number of artists that we have living here. Uh, but Newfoundland authors, we've got Lisa Moore, we've got uh, Michael Cromie, Michael Winter, um, you know, Megan Gale Coles. We've got who's we've incredible. Got, absolutely, all of these people are incredible. Uh, you know, I could go on and on with a list of names, but I mean, we've got world class people here. No doubt about it. I had a couple of my faves too, uh, Wayne Johnston, Ed Rich. But of course, there's so many that, you know, I'm in jeopardy of leaving people out who absolutely belong on the tip of our literary tongues. Kevin Major comes to mind. Okay. So that's good stuff. Give the folks the details, the where, the wins, that hopefully this happens on the 22nd this weekend. That's right. Uh, so we get going at 10 a.m. It's at the Suncor uh, Energy Hall, I believe, at the School of Music. Uh, we've got, it's a free event, which is incredible. It's always jam packed. There's free parking right next to the building. Um, so we really hope people will come up, come out and that we, uh, we don't have to cancel. We've, we're on flat terrain on (laughs) Elizabeth Avenue. So fingers crossed we'll be cleared up, uh, in time for that. People can catch updates on the Facebook page. It's Sparks, uh, at Sparks Literary Festival on Facebook, um, and the website as well. We'll have up- any updates that we may need to give. It's www.hss.mon.ca slash Sparks. But if you just Google Sparks Literary Festival, it'll pop up. Fingers crossed that it's a great event for the 13th year, or I'll add Christian Doyle and Chafe and maybe uh, Perry and Robert Chafe to that list, just in case <laughs> anyone is actually yeah. listening. Good to have you on, Heidi. Good luck with it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Patty, for having me on. You're welcome. Take good care. You too. Alrighty, bye bye. Sadie Wicks, she's an author and committee member at the Sparks Literary Festival. One mention of the outer battery, one call in the queue. That's Ryan to talk about that issue right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Ryan, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning. Um, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine was uh, replacing their porch light. You know, the, the fixture had become a little rusted. And they decided to, you know, pull out the, uh, the picture itself, do a little rewiring, and just hook it back up. Um, not quite as simple as changing the light bulb, but, you know, with, with a little bit of electrical knowledge, you can easily do it. Pretty fundamental, yeah. Anyway, at the time, uh, my friend said uh, a worker from the city of St. John's happened to be driving by, saw what they were doing, pulled over, and made them stop changing this electrical fixture and said they had to have a, have a permit to do it. So, you know, they, they stopped working on the light and, you know, went through the process of getting the permit and, you know, did it, you know, the right way, so to speak. Um, which kind of leads me to the outer battery situation. This fellow that... Just before we go any further, Ryan, uh, can you either speak up or put the uh, phone closer to your mouth or something? Because I can't really hear you very clearly. Sure, how's that? Not a whole lot better, but let's keep going. Um... So the situation with the, the lighting and the permits kind of leads into the outer battery situation. Like, this fellow, the gentleman down there, just seems to be putting up lights. Um, I'm wondering, like, I don't know a whole lot about city bylaws, but is there a way to know 
for a way to determine whether he went through the process of getting permits or whether these fixtures are in line with permits he may or may not have? It's a good point that someone also made in an email overnight is the permitting situation. With every story I've seen on this or heard on this issue, I don't think I've ever heard whether or not there was a permit applied for, granted, and whether or not the lights are in in line with the permit itself. So I don't know, but it's an excellent question. Add to it, you know, the second set of lights, are they installed up to code because there's some pictures that, you know, show some potential concerns that folks might have and maybe Newfoundland Power might want to have a look. But this is just a mind-numbing issue. Well, yeah, I mean, it's at the point where people are kind of getting, I don't know, frustrated and creative trying to figure out a way to remedy the situation, whereas it should just be a straightforward thing to figure you would think. I mean, if I didn't know you had to have a permit to replace an existing fixture on the outdoor of your home, whether it be a backyard uh, spotlight socket or receptacle and or my porch light or what have you. I don't think I've ever applied for one. Now I guess I'm ratting myself out to the city, but I replaced an outdoor fixture a few years ago. Never even considered the fact that I might have to get a permit. I just took the old one off, put the new one on. It was the exact same style and shape. It just was happened to be new, so I didn't even know you needed a permit for that. Well, you know, I, I guess I'm operating a bit on hearsay. This is something my friend said it happened to them. I'll chase the permit uh, issue because that should be easy enough to find out. But, you know, the problem is not only the bright lights, what that means to people's interruptions in their own home, whether it be sleep patterns or otherwise, but why would anyone choose to do that to their neighbors? I know the, the concept out there that people talk about is that he's trying to frustrate residents to the point where they just sell and leave, and he might have the ability to buy more property. If that's the end goal, then I'm not so sure that's been very well thought through, but you know, it's just, we've come out of this standoff in the loggerhead now where the residents now know the city is not going to do anything about it, which pretty clearly says to me that at some point, someone through a certain level of frustration is going to take matters into their own hands. And so what that means, I'm not really sure. You know, you'll hear people say all the time, and I'm not going to encourage any form of vandalism, but it's a real shock and a real wonder why those lights haven't been smashed out. Not because I think that's the right thing to do, but I think that would be... Uh, predictable outcome in some of these types of scenarios well no comment <laughs> yeah i don't know where this lands but I, I think it's i think it's ridiculous that nothing could be done i've even seen someone suggest that uh, installing mirrors at a 45 degree angle as to where the light shines and then we'll see uh, how that works out now if it interfered with anything, whether it be in the flight path or for nav safe navigation in the harbor. I think you'd see the federal government act very quickly, but we shouldn't have to resort to those types of things. You know, the ability to enjoy your own peaceful sanctuary that is your home. For many people, that's the only place they can call home and have a bit of peace and a bit of quiet and to sleep properly. So I think it's disgraceful what's going on down there. And I'm, as many of the residents are, I'm really disappointed that we haven't figured out a way to deal with this. Yeah. Um, I noticed on the City of St. John's website that the building permits are public information. So you can actually go on there and look at a PDF of uh, all the applications that have been received over the last year or so. I know someone who's more familiar with the area knows the specific address could go there and maybe do a bit of research to 
see if any permits have been pulled. Yeah, it should be easy enough to find that out. And I hadn't really given it a whole, whole lot of thought until I read that email this morning. So I will give that a chase and see if we can figure out that component of it because that gives the city an easy out. I'm going to guess that there's a permit because if there wasn't, the city wouldn't have to talk about amending the City of St. John's Act. They wouldn't have to talk about the involvement of the provincial government. They wouldn't have to talk about whether or not they have the control inside the current Section 377 or anything else. They can simply say no permit down the coast. The end. Well, like, why would they issue a permit for for a light in that fashion? Then that becomes kind of the, the city's fault for letting this happen. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can find out the permit uh, issue. And again, you make an important point that even if someone applies for a permit, if your end construction or additional lights or the deck you build on or whatever, if it doesn't follow through with the specifics inside the application, that permit is now null and void. And I've seen and heard people run into that. And I've had to be very careful on that front myself a couple of times. So I will give that a chase. Maybe I could do it throughout the course of the morning. But maybe if at the very least, I'll do it after the show this morning. Cool. I appreciate the time. Uh, can I just ask one more thing? Sure, you can say whatever you like. Um, I've heard you say many times on the program that, you know, you've never met anybody anybody from Stingray. No one has ever told you what you can and can't say. That's uh, true. Um, I also heard you say yesterday that you were warned about talking about the battery issue. Can you square that circle? No, no. Someone who's just a general listener saying with the litigious nature of the person who's actually sued someone for looking at him and for all the other uh, lawsuits he's brought forward, someone said I should be careful talking about it, to which I said when I mentioned that yesterday that I wasn't going to uh, hesitate to speak about it because I think it's an important matter. But that was just a a listener, so-called, looking out for me, telling me that I might find myself on the wrong end of a lawsuit. That's what that was. Yeah, that's fair. I'm seeing more and more memes from uh, some local pages that are kind of getting on the gentleman in question. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen some, you know, on their Facebook page or group, there's lots of uh, of those memes which are adding some humor to the anger, which I think is encouraging. But still, yeah, so that was the comment yesterday about uh, being warned. Some listeners said, look, you should be careful on this one. But, I mean, I can't tiptoe around an issue that's been pretty big and has blown up right in the city where I live, a stone's throw from where my home is in the East End. So, yeah, that's what that was. For sure. Hello. Thanks for your time. Anytime, Ryan. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, the whole bit about being told what I can and cannot do, honest to God, I wouldn't know someone from Stingray if they walked in the studio right this very minute, right? And I think you can tell by the show. Look, if you want to call with anything that opposes any opinion I've ever offered, you're more than welcome. It's 273-5211 in the St. John's metro region. Long distance, toll free. It's on us. 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, young athletes and their coaches and trainers and managers and their family are all in high anticipation of the Canada Winter Games that are coming up in Prince Edward Island or on Prince Edward Island beginning on February the 18th, running until March the 5th. Of course, multi-sport event and Newfoundland and Labrador athletes are raring and ready to go. There's a kickoff event coming up next week. Join us on line number one is the Chef de Mission for Team Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Tom Godden. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. I'm happy to do it. 
Uh, right off the bat, yeah. excellent choice as the chef. You've been around sports for a lifetime and, of course, been involved with many uh, uh, Canada games, summer and winter. So bravo to you and your leadership team. Thanks, Patty. Okay, so, so just, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. Tom. So I just wanted to let you know that uh, you know, our teams are, are preparing uh, as best they can, uh, even without the snow. Uh, a lot of dry land training going on without snow, but uh, hopefully the next couple of days will uh, mean that they'll get some good training in uh, prior to leaving for the games on the 18th of February. So we've got a number of 16 sports uh, representing 20 teams going to the games, and uh, we're ready and raring to go. On Tuesday evening at uh, at the Sports Centre, we're having an athletes rally, sort of a big send-off for the athletes. At that time, the Premier will be announcing the flag bearer and we'll be unveiling the clothing that the athletes and coaches and managers will be wearing at the games and, uh, and sort of doing a, an introduction of the teams. Now, not everybody can be there, of course, because we're spread across the province. But uh, the nice thing this year at the Athletes Rally, we're doing a live stream uh, through the courtesy of the government of Newfoundland and Labrador through their Facebook page and YouTube. So uh, athletes from other parts of the, of the province can uh, take part and see what's going on with the athletes' rally. So that's great. It was one of the questions I was going to ask you is the complications with the winter weather that we generally have by now and the effort to train because it's hard to replicate some snow-related uh, competitions just in, you know, over at the Powerplex or what have you. So do you hear much in the way of frustration and or trepidation going to the games where some athletes who really need to be on the snow can't find any? Yeah, we don't hear a lot. You know, I think these uh, these sports that are in, you know, that are in need of, of those kinds of conditions are used to having you know varying conditions to deal with in their training, so they they adapt. And uh, you know, let me tell you, our teams this time round over the last two years have had to adapt uh, given the COVID restrictions, and through the guidance of the chief medical officer of health. Uh, over the last two seasons, in 21 and 22, each of our teams have had to be very creative in, in uh, trying to come up with uh, innovative ways to keep their training up and, and keeping sharp for the, the games coming up now next month. Yeah, the final selection of the teams, you know, for many of them have been fairly recent. You know, just prior to Christmas, I saw an announcement about who eventually made the hockey team and what have you. Mm-hmm. But the selection process, for people who have not been involved, and we've been through it inside my home, uh, with Jack eventually playing in the summer games. But the selection process can take a couple-plus years. So this is a long time in the making, not only for the leadership and preparations, whether it be on Prince Edward Island or otherwise, but for the young athletes, they've been digging in on this one for a long time. So this is a massive event. And for the most of them, if not every single one of them, this is the biggest event they'll ever participate in up until this point of their career. Yeah, for sure. This will be the highlight for most uh you know, it's interesting at the Athletes Rally, we have uh, special guests. We have Jamie Korob, actually, who's uh, emceeing the event. And we have uh, Mark Nichols, Nathan Young, and Jada Lee uh, from last year's Summer Games uh, coming to sort of help uh, cheer on the contingent. And each of these athletes are former uh, you know, players and, and uh, participants in previous Canada Games. So they know what it's like. They know what the preparation the preparation is uh, involved to uh, to get ready for the games. So uh, 
you know, it, it is a trying process for sure. And it's, uh, as you've suggested, it's over a long period of time. And uh, each and every one of these athletes truly deserve to be on Team NL. And uh, I know each and every one are looking forward to representing the province uh, the best way uh, they, they possibly can. And their athletes, that the young athletes participating in the upcoming Winter Games, will in- inevitably look up to. I mean, Mark Nichols, world junior champion in curling, world champion, gold medalist at the Olympics, four-time Briar champion. Nathan Young got a chance to play at the most recent Briar with Team Gushu. He's an up-and-coming Team Young uh, skipper. And then, of course, Jay Lee, a baseball in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, when she put the uh, first pitch over the plate at the most recent Summer Games at the tender age of 16, the first woman to ever play in the men's competition at the Canada Summer Games in baseball so three beauties there and no question they'll be looking up to uh or they'll be looking at with respect to the young athletes making the way to prince edward island you know i know the various teams they will have set some goals whether it be about how they place or the level of compete that they bring to whatever discipline as a team now that we've had a couple like i mean the summer games were relatively successful and we've had moderate to not great success in many games over the years. Some of it's about, you know, cost to travel to play against the best competition. Some other provinces might have more and more professional coaches in play and bigger populations to pick from. What does goal setting mean for the leadership? What does goal setting mean for the teams? Well, it's first of all, it's, it's important that they all have goals. And, uh, you know, there are dream goals and there are achievable goals. And so we encourage the teams to, you know, set goals that uh, they feel are achievable. And one of the mantras that we've sort of uh, encouraged with our teams this time around, we actually implemented this in uh, 22, was to have the athletes understand that there are certain things that are within their control and there are certain things when it comes to preparation and competing at the games that are outside your control. So uh, we've been encouraging them to focus on those things that they have control over and do your best. And if doing your best means standing on the podium, fantastic. If doing your best means you place ninth or 10th, that's fine. It's your best performance. So the mantra we have brought forward with all our teams and our athletes is doing your best, nothing less. Yeah, so because you're going to go to the game. Yeah. You know, when you see, uh, whether it be the country going to international events or the province going to national events, career best, some people kind of look down their nose at that, but on that stage with that type of pressure in a type of large-scale event you've never been involved in before, for the most part for these young athletes, to be able to summon a career best is not a bad thing, regardless if that means sixth or if that means tenth. If it's the best you've ever done, well, there's something to be proud of on that front. For people who don't know, and I guess I'm asking for myself as well, is... What exactly is your role and the other leadership uh, as part of Team NL? You know, paint us a picture of a day or a week when you make your way to Prince Edward Island as the chef. So we have a uh, support staff called Mission Staff. Uh, they're uh, made up of a leadership team of the chef team. We call a chef team. So I would be the chef to mission. And we have two assistant chef to missions this time. Uh, Gary Martin, who was the chef from the previous games, as you know, and Jamie Randall, who's the other assistant chef. And then each week of the two weeks at the games, we have seven additional mission staff in each week that support the teams. Uh, We also have two staff members from Sport NL who also do a lot of great work in helping support the team. So during the games, there are a lot of things around, well, first we've got to get the athletes to the games. We've got to get them properly clothed beforehand in the gear that I've uh, made reference to. 
there's a lot of issues sometimes around uh, travel to and from the venues. Uh, there's meals that have to be uh, appropriate for uh, this high level of performer. Uh, accommodations is another thing. And there's always, you know, uh, tangly issues that crop up from time to time that the mission staff, uh, are, their role is to assist the coaching staff so the coaching staff can really concentrate on performance and not have to worry about the logistical things that inevitably crop up while you're at games. So really, from a, a support uh, standpoint, the mission staff are there to support the coaches and managers on all the logistical issues around games like transportation, meals, accommodation, and anything else that may arise. Well, I think it's just a... It's a memory that they will all share forevermore. Even their parents and supporters, friends and nans and pops, this is a big deal. So we wish all of them safe travels, good luck, whatever that means inside their 20 different or 16 different disciplines that people will be competing in. Bravo. Uh, good luck to you and your leadership team as well, Tom. Thanks for this this morning. Thanks, Patty, and thanks for taking my call. Anytime. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Tom Godden. He's the TMNL chef de mission. Heading to the Canada Winter Games, Prince Edward Island, beginning on the February, part of the 18th of February. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. The topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, another sports note. Perfect. It's been 407 days since the Newfoundland Rogues have played. They go back to Mary Brown Centre tonight, uh, tip off at 7 p.m. when they host and take on the Rally Firebirds. They have left what was the American Basketball Association, and now they're competing in the Basketball League. It's a U.S.-based 52-team league. Join us on line number two is David Magley. He's the president of the Basketball League. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm looking out my window at the Delta to your beautiful Bay Area and just falling in love all over again with this, this great city of yours. We, I was the commissioner of the NBL Canada uh, negotiating with people before you got the, the edge here a few years ago. So I'd been here a few times prior to that, so it's just really great to be back in Newfoundland. Well, welcome back. And, of course, I know your name from those uh, years prior to the edge making their way to mile, then mile one, now the Murray Brown Center. And the Newfoundland Rogues will be participating in the East Conference. There was lots of concerns, I believe, with the league that they just left. For a variety of reasons, there was a lot of teams that came and went over the course of a very short amount of time. Dozens, if not hundreds of teams came and went in that league. It had a few curious rules. Some of them were entertaining, some of them were confusing. I think the fans took a while to warm up to those rules. But this league is much more stable. Talk us through the history of the Basketball League in Coles Notes form about what they offer, how long they've been around, the stability of the teams, historically. Yeah, yeah. so we're... We are a, a, a we're, we're entering our sixth season. I, I left the NBL Canada and came here. My, my background is I played at a high level and I was fortunate enough to have a cup of coffee in the NBA and all that stuff. And then and then we started this league after I had been in the NBL Canada for four years. Two as a coach GM and two as their commissioner. And then we started this league with with eight teams. And then we went to 10 and then 12 and then, uh, and then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, our only option was to grow because it was kind of tone deaf to go back to our team saying, I need this, I need that, when we didn't know if they'd ever even play again. So during the middle of COVID, we went from 12 to 29 teams. 2019 started, 2019's finished. Last year, 44 teams, 44 teams started, 44 teams finished. This year, we're actually at 49 teams with 46 in the U.S., three in Canada, one in Newfoundland, two in Quebec. 
plus we play the NBL Canada, those their, their remaining four teams that are all in Ontario, they play a full schedule with our league, our teams as well, so that they can have you know a variety of teams to play against. Uh, we're, we're in a great partnership with them, and our level of play is is a little more like theirs. Is. It's a we've had four guys in the NBA. One currently is, is a player in the NBA. We've got multiple guys in the NBA G League that are going up. We've got literally half of our guys go play around the world after they play in our league. So it's it's a different vision. Our vision is all about community. We want our guys to be very active. You know, let's face it, they're very visible when they're in St. John's. And, yeah. and if we do things the right way, they can be they can use their celebrity to impact. And that's what we want to be. We want to be an asset that when you're done, they're going, wow, I love the Rogues, not just because they're entertaining. You have to trust me. The level of play will be as good as you've ever seen in Mary Brown. When it was mile one, it will be similar to what you saw there. It'll be, you know, the same type of players, same type. We played the NBL last year when they played in the U.S. We we won more than they did. So the reality is that it's a pretty competitive league, and you'll see great basketball. But it's got to be so much more than that. We've got to be become an asset, and we will have arrived when you go. Wow, did you see the things they're doing with the free camps and clinics and the the give back, the readings, the impact on the young people. And that's why we do what we do. Is it, it's, it's really to, to, to create a greater legacy. Yeah, and we've had Coach Jerry Williams on the program. I actually know Tony Kenny from over the years growing up here in the city. And I know he's fully and 100% committed to the Rogues and their long-term success. Help me understand why there are two different leagues that have struck a partnership. It's not that it's a bad thing, but were the NBL unwilling to say, for instance, officially join your league, or why is there still that splinter? And again, it doesn't make it a bad thing. It's just, or just simply a question. I think no, it's a great question, and, it, and, it, and it's more about evolution. It's, it's how does this fit best? How do we complement them? I think last year we needed to prove that we could compete because. You know, when you grow as fast as we've grown, the assumption is there just must be a lot of bad teams in there, and he's just doing anything to get people in. And then when they realized we were very competitive and our brand was good and our, our venues are good and we do a lot of the same things they do, maybe not quite as much because to get great venues in Canada, you have to be on ice. And when you do that, it costs $5,000 everywhere across the continent, North America, to convert it. Just to convert it from ice to, to basketball, you're going to pay 5000 a game. Well, you throw in whatever Mary Brown needs to, for rent and the picketing fees and all that, it's a lot more expensive to do business in Canada than the U.S. because almost virtually all of our venues in the U.S. are just large gyms. We have we have high school gyms in Indiana that seat six to 7,000 people with jumbo trucks. I mean, they're with, with basketball floors that are down all the time. So the cost factors go way down in the U.S. What the NBL is, is just right now, they're – they were hit hard by COVID, as you know, being up here. I remember one of the NBL teams that's in Prince Edward Island said, listen, if we get two cases of COVID, they shut down the bridge. They're not letting anybody on or off the island. Uh, we had a doctor COVID in, <laughs> excuse me, in Kokomo, Indiana. We had 3,000 people opening night with eight masks. I mean, it's just a different way they look at it. Now, California, New York, they were very strict, but – the, the, the majority of the country was open just much quicker. So the NBL is still catching their breath from that experience. And, and they don't know for certain what the look is like going forward. So let's keep the brand another year. Let's see how it works. And if there's the right teams that come in and we build the NBL up, great. If not, I think we'll eventually will 
we will uh, no question be be even more of a partnership in the years to come. I think that you'll see this evolve into something even tighter, if that makes any sense. It, it does to me, and hopefully the Rogues get off to a good start, not only, not only on the court, but in the stands. And, you know, fingers crossed on that front, because the team is obviously quite committed to the city long term. And, you know, you just mentioned that you had a cup of coffee in the NBA. Curiously, David... Uh, David Magley was born in South Bend, Indiana, but was a Jayhawk playing at the University of Kansas. Was Mr. Basketball in Indiana, of course, which is the hotbed of American basketball in that part of the country in 1978. Second round pick of the Cleveland Cavaliers in 1982, which featured a guy with one of the best names of pro sports of all time, World Be Free. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a great Well, my, my, my timing was as a freshman at Kansas, I played against Irvin Magic Johnson. And then Michael Jordan's first game as a freshman in college was against us. So that's kind of the era I played in. And, you know, I had 24 points and, and Michael had 12, but I wear Michael's clothes. He's not wearing mine. I, he's not, I wear Air Jordan. He doesn't wear ground magley. He did, he did a little bit better than I did. But I'll tell you, Patty, you, you mentioned Tony Kenny. He's exactly what we need for ownership. His family's involved. He's all the way in, both feet. 100% committed. His son, Diego, uh, is, is somebody that, you know, I, I almost tear up when I think about the way he loves his son and how much this means to his son. His son went to bed early last night because this morning he's couldn't, he had to get up. He was just too excited because today's the first game. And when you look at somebody that cares about his family like he does and loves his community like he does, you got to believe that the fans will come out and support it, especially as they get more visible when we get out in the community. When they, again, trust me, the level of play, the, the, the entertainment, that'll, that, that's easy. That, that's, there's so much talent in North America that there's no way the play won't be great. But the entertainment, the, the dancers, the music, the, the mascot, all the things that come along with it is going to be special. Then you see what we do outside around your town, you're going to be really impressed. And I'm, I'm excited to be up here and, and grateful because I think, I really think, you know, if you look at the two great markets in Canada, London is amazing because they, they do great with their OHL team, the Knights, and the London Lightning, who are coming up here next week. Uh, it, just, they just do a great job in their fan base. And then here, you know, Newfoundland, this, is, this can be a really big deal in St. John's. And it's, we thought that before, before the NBL team came here, and, and I'm more convinced ever because they drew extremely well. They had some very great moments in, in that arena. We think we've got to duplicate it and hopefully build on it. Yeah, and I hate to derail the conversation from the Rogues, but I'm always intrigued with those name drops, too, because, uh, of course, uh, Jordan played in North Carolina. You mentioned Magic played at Michigan State. And, of course, the big rivalry those days was between him and Larry Bird, even at the college days. Curiously, Bird was uh, born in Indiana, grew up in French Lick, but went on to play his uh, ball at Indiana State. So all interesting overlaps there. David, good to have you on the show. Good luck throughout the entirety of the season with the Basketball League, and go Rogues, go. Patty, thanks for the support, and I hope to meet you at a game sometime. I look forward to it. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number three. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today. How are you doing? I want to give a quick call about that light situation down in uh, the battery there. Well, here's an update before we get your thoughts. Apparently, overnight, someone hauled him down and got arrested. Well, it's a good thing I don't live down there because they'd be gone long ago. That's my opinion. But I was down there last night on a service call, so out of curiosity, I had to go down and the rest of his look. And I'm going to tell you that those lights are something else. I mean, I went up that road, and I had to get out of my pickup truck four times 
back out because the lights were that blinding down the road. And I backed up now, a piece, uh, touched that piece of concrete. I said, geez, I'm at the back of the stop. Anyway, it was only just a piece of concrete. And uh, two gentlemen come along and guarded me down at it. I mean, this is, I'm not joking. You could, that house across the street, those lights are shining directly on it. You could paint that house 12 o'clock in the night. Is that right down there? Oh, I went and had a look. It was just wild. I mean, this is crazy. I mean, I, I don't understand where, where where we got a permit. To, 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 I mean, if I put a bright light in front of my house down where I live, then be war down there. I mean, not only that, the city be down, first of all, and saying, who, who's electrical? Who's the electrician that done this job? Because I'm sure you would need a, a permit to actually install something that bright. It's just even putting a light over your door, but not something... Uh, two foot square with probably a million, million candle watts into it. You know what I mean? God almighty, I mean, the city got to be able to do Somebody got to be able to do something. You would think so, because my worry is that it was going to lead to who knows what type of outcome, oh, and people will take it into their own oh, hands. And so apparently, one thirty this morning, someone hauled him down. Oh, I can't blame him. Whatever he done, I'd, I'd stand behind him in the courthouse and, and, and applaud him, because this, I mean, to my opinion, uh, it got to be some kind of mental abuse for some people, basically, because, I mean, that house across the street, I guess they must have boards up to the windows on the inside so they can sleep in the nighttime. You would think so. Yeah, I mean, if people who have not seen it, like if you're listening from somewhere outside the city and think, oh, my God, we're talking about a bright light, it's more than that. I mean, it is, it's so far over the top that it brings a lot of important questions to bear about how, why, and what is eventually going to happen with those. But I guess this is, you know, uh, round number one where someone went after him last night, and it won't be the last time. And that is a really unfortunate reality because you know what's going to happen. It's predictable that if there's, for instance, the municipality in this case, they say they can't, but it feels like they won't do anything about it. And, you know, one of the councillors sent along a uh, question and answer sheet about the city's position on it. But, I mean, the the problem persists, and when their decision was made Monday night, immediately there was more lights put up, and now, lo and behold, last night, or I guess one thirty this morning, yeah. down they came. Uh, appreciate this, yeah. John. Anything else you want to say about it? No, I'm just saying, like, the city, uh, is the city actually afraid of them because what went on in Cornerbrook or something? There's something more to this story that, that, that the city won't do something, and they need to do something now, today. This needs to stop. And I'm, I don't live down there. I have a few relatives down in the area. I don't live down there. But if a crowd of people wants to get together on Monday night and come down by City Hall and support these people down there, I'll be one of the first ones to gladly go down there. I appreciate the time this morning, John. Thanks for the call. Take care, Patty. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of time left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. He's the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development. Also chairs the All-Party Committee looking at basic income. That's Minister Abbott. John Abbott, Minister Abbott, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Would you care to chime in on the outer battery before we dig into basic income? Well, it's uh, unfortunately, as, uh, as you've reported and the callers have indicated, the uh, situation has escalated uh, out at the Outer Battery, something I know the residents were concerned about. Uh, the uh, politicians involved, including myself, are certainly concerned about. So it is sort of a call to action, I think, for, for the city to double down and, and find a solution here. Uh, my office uh, 
and others here in the provincial government are certainly prepared to work with the city to, to find that solution. Okay, and because something has to give, because we can't have this happen time over time where someone's going to do this with a pelican or on a ladder or a rock or something, because then we're going to see this escalate even further than just property damage, possibly. Uh, let's dig into the All-Party Committee on Basic Income. I know there's been one, maybe two meetings. Where are we? Well, the All-Party Committee was set up uh, before Christmas, uh, and uh, i just let uh, our listeners know who's on the committee, uh, along with myself. It's uh, Minister Bernie Davis, uh, M uh, MHA Sherry Gammon-Walsh, uh, MHA Craig Party, representing the uh, Conservatives, and uh, uh, Mr. Jim Din, representing the NDP. So we have uh, met, finalized our terms of reference, and have uh, starting to dig into the whole notion of what a basic income uh, would be and what a plan could be for 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 this province. Uh, we've had a meeting with uh, before Christmas with uh, one of the national experts who's been uh, uh, very very knowledgeable and very insightful for us, and that was Sheila Regeer. So we uh, took her advice, and uh, yesterday we met with the Basic Income Newfoundland Network, uh, which represents a lot of uh, community agencies who've been very active in this area uh, around basic income, and we had a, a very constructive, positive meeting, uh, and there was a great dialogue, again, to help inform the, the thinking uh, process really for, for our committee. What were some of the key takeaways, the advice you were given from uh, someone on the national scene? Well, they, they looked at this, and again, consistent is if we want to address poverty uh, in this country, uh, then we have to come, out, uh, come at it in a different way. Our income support systems, as good as they are, aren't, aren't up, to, up to that task. Uh, there are a lot of uh, families, individuals and families, sort of left uh, on the outside of that. We have a lot of uh, individuals you know, working in the service industry who, uh, despite the incomes that they're earning, don't have sufficient funds to, uh, to meet all their uh, daily living costs, whether it's rent, uh, transportation, food, those kinds of things. So there's a recognition, and certainly uh, through COVID and as a result of CERB, that there's a better way of uh, doing business. They were very complimentary, Sheila Regeer, that is, was very complimentary of uh, the Newfoundland approach uh, in that we uh, started down this road with the targeted uh, basic income for, for youth uh, leaving our uh, child protection services, and that that is a, a way to build uh, a consensus in the, in the province and in the country uh, to, uh, to eventually have a national, uh, national approach here. You know, people, when you talk to uh, uh, anti-poverty advocates and, you know, the food first NLs of the world and Jody Williams at Bridges to Hope, and they talk about the solutions here being fairly fundamental is money in hand can allow you to afford more and more goods and services in this world. And that all makes sense. But how do we incorporate what are some of the cracks or the potential pitfalls that present themselves when money is, uh, is the conversation? For instance... I look back into the 70s in Manitoba, the Dauphin Bucks. Dauphin Manitoba, they instituted it. It came out with great results insofar as addressing poverty-related matters, but it also came with the downside of maybe some of the money not being spent where we all hope it gets spent. And that's not to be stereotypical judgmental of anybody, but how do you incorporate the required, I would think, the required harm reduction policies to work hand-in-glove with basic income? Because I don't think you can have one without the other for the positive outcomes. Well, Patty, I think you've one of the yeah, critical issues for for anybody that's involved in this uh, topic is addressing those kinds of issues that you want to make sure there are 
there are positive incentives to continue to be attached to the workforce, obviously, uh, but at the same time supporting uh, their their income needs. Uh, when it comes to issues around mental health and addictions and uh, those things, well, we, we need to make sure that those supports are uh, also in place. So there's a balancing here, but the, one of the key messages from yesterday's discussion from the uh, community agencies said that, in fact, uh, while we develop uh, a basic income uh, approach, we've got to make sure we uh, invest in our community supports for persons with mental health addictions and homelessness uh, at, the, at the same time. So that's, uh, uh, that's going to be an important uh, consideration here. The, some of the evidence that I've seen and, and read uh, speaks to uh, the for those over in Europe and elsewhere that have done uh, some of this type of uh, basic income approach, uh, that it's uh, the individual uh, f- uh, that's benefiting, uh, benefiting from such a plan uh, feels that they have more control over their life, they have more control over what they spend their money on in terms of uh, the appropriate housing, the appropriate food, as opposed to being dictated by, uh, say, a, a social assistance or income support approach, which is more uh, more restrictive, obviously, of, uh, of, of choice. And that's uh, uh, going to be an important consideration here. Opponents to any thought about universal basic income or guaranteed income, they say that we've already got a productivity issue in this country. We may indeed see people just rely on that in full versus any incentive to work. And we'll get into the overlaps with the pilot project for youth on income support in a second. But what type of incentives are we talking about? Because that's important. I don't necessarily align myself with everyone's just going to be lazy and not want to work because I, I think that's an exaggeration. But there's got to be some built-in incentives because if not, there will be more people relying on the program versus using it as a complement to their uh, uh, annual income. So what are we talking about with an incentive to work? Well, that's, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, that is going to be, uh, I think, a very important consideration. <laughs> as we develop uh, our recommendations is where is that right balance uh, so that uh, we can make sure whatever construct we come up with uh, acts as an incentive and not disincentive. Uh, I'll be interested in reading and getting access to some of the research around in terms of implementation of CERB because it met a very particular need at, uh, at a point in our economic <laughs> uh, history, as it were, as a result of, of COVID. Uh, but there, there were positives that people got cash to need to, to make sure they could meet their, their, their needs. But at the same time, we did hear from employers uh, that uh, it there was a, there has been a challenge in getting uh, people to, to work. So we got to find out what the research tells us on that. So we, in any design that we come up with, we'll incorporate that. And you know, just to speak to what is that pushback? Some of that is kind of stereotypical stuff, but. Even speak with Jody Williams at Bridges to Hope, when CERB was in the hands of many people that would come through their doors, they disappeared. So obviously people were willing and wanting to spend on the fundamentals, the necessities of life, as opposed to it all went into a VLT or into the liquor store or to the drug dealer on the corner. So we just have to be careful how we talk about it, but we can't be afraid of it because it is part of the conversation. And I think, yes, and I think uh, our, what we would, uh, would be striving for is that uh, you know obviously the individual benefiting will will be making the right choices. Uh, not to say that everybody, <laughs> you know, they're making choices. Some that we would agree with. Some obviously we won't. We're not going to be able to change all human behavior, but we can address what we know that's in front of us now. That there are people who do not have sufficient incomes to to really feel, live comfortably that you and I take take for granted. Would there? 
I'm not even sure what I'm trying to get at here. Would there be punishments or ramifications for people who would be maybe uh, identified as simply abusing the system as opposed to, like when you apply for employment insurance, it used to be fairly carefully evaluated whether or not you were actively looking for work to remain a recipient. Are there going to be some of these catch-alls or backstops inside of basic income, if it ever comes to pass in this province, so that we reduce the number of people who might be simply using that and considering nothing else in this world and turning a blind eye to any incentive and simply relying on the government like we maybe see in some instances of social assistance? So will any of those backstops or evaluations or investigations be part of this? Well, I think that's, again, part of of, of the design and figure out uh, what will work best. What will the construct the construct be? Will we build on, for instance, the EI program and say, well, uh, for those where there is a gap, uh, then we, you know, we we quote unquote uh, top that up so they make sure that they have uh, uh, meet the quote unquote the poverty line, for instance, uh, but that there's still be an attachment to the workforce. I know from my perspective that that's going to be very important. That whatever we come up with, it supports individuals uh, that they're either going to be in training, uh, attached to the workforce. Uh, so that uh, for or for that cohort, you know, between 20 and 50 or 60, that that's going to be an important consideration. When it comes to seniors, we we be we have other issues that we want to uh, to ensure that we accomplish. And same with youth, to make sure that they can move uh, forward. And that's why we we have the target program right now for for youth, and uh, we're seeing some positives already. Uh, we announced a program uh, uh, this week for to support employment and, uh, and attachment to the workforce for, for youth and others, and we're already seeing dividends there uh, because we're saying we know that income support is important, but you, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't have to be the, the first uh, response when uh, youth, for instance, are looking for income. We want to make sure we provide them with access to the training, Act, provide the incentives to do that, and then attach them to the workforce and make sure uh, that they have uh, benefits that can support them for the, for the long term. No different than we're doing with our uh, right now for retention and uh, uh, attention. Uh, excuse me for the uh, for our other workers that we know retention is important, so we need to provide incentives uh, to to do that, and that's working already. I'll have, I have a specific question about the uh, pilot program, but inside of this basic income, you know, when people say, "Well, we simply can't." afford it. You know, if you added up uh, the comprehensive nature of social assistance, federal programs, provincial programs, added up the uh, dollar amount associated with boutique tax cuts, we can afford to do different. We can afford to do better. So in your own personal vision, does this replace a lot of the other social safety net programs with a basic income, or would they work in conjunction? Because they might come up against a so-called affordability issue. Yeah, no, uh, a, a great a great question, because I think there's a combination here. One is that we can build on existing programs. We redesign some others so that they, they complement. And then where there is a gap, uh, then that's where we, we top that up with uh, uh, the uh, available dollars uh, from the federal government and whatever the dollars uh, the, the, a province can put in. And that's, uh, I think, uh, we, when we focus on targeting this and building this over time, I think we, we, uh, we can get there. We know the federal government is uh, passing legislation to have a disability benefit. Well, that would be a great uh, uh, 
program if once that comes to pass because then we can build on on that in in the in the short term and at the same time for seniors we have uh, the old age security and GIS where is there if there's a gap there then who can fill in the gap so make sure our seniors have uh, sufficient uh, income and that over time we can sort of quote unquote knit all of these uh, approaches together to uh, one national plan yeah, on top of those two things, between harm reduction and incentives, it's going to be the be-all and end-all as to whether this even gets off the ground and whether or not it actually works. Let's move on to the pilot project, Youth on Income Support. You know, the numbers over the years, and of course you're the minister responsible today, there was plenty of data that indicated that if you grew up in a household where the caregivers, mom or dad, were social assistance recipients, the likelihood of you also being a social assistance recipient as you become an adult became greater than if you grew up in a family that was different. Was that one of the key issues here for focusing in on youth and income support here to try to break that cycle? Because that would be the long-term vision versus the short-term immediacy of need. Yes, and I think we've you know we've done a lot of uh, uh, research on this area. We've done a lot of talking about it, but we really weren't uh, intervening where we should and, and how we should. And that meant redesigning our programming, providing the right f- uh, financial incentives to entice and support youth uh, moving from dependency uh, to to independence. And uh, had a lot of you know conversations here with our social workers and others on that, and uh, I think we all had a meeting of the minds that look we can uh, do things uh, things differently, and uh, and that's really what we are doing re- as we as we speak. And uh, I'm based on just the preliminary results, uh, and as announced uh, earlier this week, uh, we've enrolled 86 individuals. 11 uh, already have moved off of uh, income support. So that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, a win already. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister Abbott. Thank you. All the best. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. As uh, John Abbott, he's the Minister of Children, Seniors, and Social Development, as well as uh, Persons with Disabilities, and the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation. Of course, the member for St. John's East, Kitty Vitti. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there talking about immigration status. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you so much for this uh, platform there. Happy to do it. Okay, so I'm calling mainly because I, um, on implied status, I'm going to go through the whirlwind of what's been going on the last two years. Okay, so I came here as a student and I studied um, at Mon, and I finished my studies in 2020. And once I had finished that, I applied for my postgrad work permit the beginning of last uh, 2021, and that puts me on implied status. So, so many people, they don't understand what that is, but that's simply you're allowed to work and continue to reside here until a decision has been made on your work permit. So you can look for a new job, anything pretty much like that you, a regular person would be able to do, right? Um, but the only thing that you're not allowed to do is to leave the country. Because once you do, you can't come back and start working until a decision has been made on your application. So because of this, it comes with its own uh, limitations that unfortunately I've experienced. And, um, <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to try to speak slowly because sometimes I would talk a little too fast and I'm anxious or nervous. So um, I've gone through a few limitations on the implied status that I currently am on. So a few of them would be, I can't get an MCP. 
So I've been here long enough that I'm able, I'm eligible to get an MCP, but because of my current status, I wasn't able to get one in my final year of uh, university because uh, there were some complications with that. But then to try and renew it now, they say I need to have a current work permit. Um, I got sick, wanted to get uh, medical attention, but unfortunately with my private insurance, it means I need to pay out of pocket. And with the cost of everything today, it's really expensive and I wouldn't know how to even start doing that. Um, another one is getting a driver's license. That's simple. You go to motor vehicle uh, department, you do your tests, and that's it. But for me, I had to constantly be back and forth with them for two months trying to get a driver's license so I can get a car to drive uh, to work and back. Um, I also, as I mentioned, not able to leave the country means I wasn't able to go to a relative's funeral. I lost a loved one earlier last year. Last year, and I wasn't able to go say my, sorry, I wasn't able to go. I wasn't able to go and, you know, pay my respects or even see my other relatives just to um, be with everyone else. The most I could do was call and that's it. I haven't been home in like three years. I can't go home. I can't leave. And that's hard. Where is home? Sorry. Um, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to follow along as best I can. So where are we today? Uh, have some of the hurdles been removed? Are you at a standstill with the uh, immigration status question? I'm at a standstill. Um, so I have tried to contact um, the IRCC platform trying to let them know I need an update. Um, they say if your application has been in the process for longer than usual, give them a call or send them a web form and they'll try to get back to you with an update or try and um, accelerate your application. I did that. Nothing came back. Um, the most they could tell me is that um, there's other priority cases taking place, which I definitely understand because I too would say those are priority cases. Um, and then I tried calling representatives. They said the most they could give me was the same information I can see online. So for context, I applied early 2021. The last communication I received was in April 2021. I haven't heard back ever since then. Um, I did contact my MP. I contacted my MHA. They're doing the best they can, too. They're going through the forms trying to get some information on my behalf, and I really appreciate them for that. Um, but again, the most they could do was get an update that I did receive on my online platform, which was in, I believe, August of 2021, which was to say my application was moved to a different um, location from where it had been moved to before in April. You know, there's different pathways to citizenship or permanent residency, and the process hasn't changed, but the numbers sure have. And consequently, we've got a backlog of whether it be an evaluation, an application for ref refugee status, or a targeted skilled immigrant. I mean, we just had an incident here, or an issue here, where a Chilean lady who was self-employed, employing people in the province, didn't fit the parameters for her visa to be extended until people jumped through hoops and ran over all sorts of members of parliament and their staff to try to get this settled and solved. Eventually it, it was. But until we improve the processes, then adding numbers is just making for more and more snarls like yours. Right. And 
I can understand, like, with the delays and, you know, starting and COVID that things happen. But I find in my case is definitely a different one because right now I am still able to work, right? So I don't take that for granted. I know I'm able to work. I can continue to work. But because of the rise of inflation and everything that's currently happening right now, I secured myself a second job. And that's to help myself paying some bills. I want to buy a house in the future because this is exactly why I call home. I've been here long enough. I haven't been home that often to be saying Zimbabwe is my home. This is my home. But I was informed by my employer that, unfortunately, because of my employee status and how long it's taking, they might have to let me go. Before that, I couldn't even find another job because um, uh, for my second job because no one was taking me because of things like status. No one really understands what it means or how it works, and jumping through the hoops makes it more difficult. Um, I spoke to an immigration lawyer. I spoke to consultants who were like taking an unusually long time because it's been two years. I haven't heard back. I have nothing. But all I have is this implied status. Is again, I can't leave. Another issue, another something, something else I can compare it with is my sister applied for hers just end of last year, and she received hers end of last year. She waited three months. I've been waiting two years, and nothing can be done. Yeah. No, nothing can be done is always a, a terrible outcome statement coming from whatever level of government on an individual circumstance that needs to be addressed. You know, throwing our hands in the air is generally just the lazy person's way out. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry to hear that it's happening to you like this. Would you like to say anything else before they send me off to the newscast? Um, not really. I've, this is all I have right now. It's just, you know, with everything going on, I don't know where to turn to because it feels like the only person looking out for me is me. And with the rise of immigration and everyone trying, uh, well, other applications taking priority, it feels like the people who are here already in Canada are being left to say, spend for yourself, you're here, be grateful. But how else are we supposed to live? How else are we supposed to survive if we can't find employment, if we're going to be let go? What are we supposed to do as our next step? Because I've got nothing else back home in Zimbabwe. I won't find a job there. What am I supposed to do? Just go and sit home and do nothing else? Uh, the short answer for me with no authority or jurisdiction here would be no. That would be the worst outcome possible. I'm sorry to hear that this is happening. If you have an update to share with us at any time in the near future, and fingers crossed it's a positive update, we welcome you back on the program. Thank you so much. Take good care. Good luck. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, there's a caller there to talk about the committee struck, the all-party committee struck to look at basic income. Then we're talking about light pollution, and then we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. There was a piece published in the North Avalon, Northeast Avalon Times this month regarding light pollution. I guess most of it will stem from some of the concerns we've seen in the outer battery and the bright lights, and maybe even just things like the uh, the lights of the southern shore attracting the puffins to the shore. Join us on line number six is the gentleman who penned this particular article in the Northeast Avalon Times, and that's Dr. Bill Montevecchi. Dr. Montevecchi, you're on the air. Oh, yeah. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Oh, I'm I'm great. Yeah, great. And uh, yeah, glad somebody picked up on this. We, you know, we do have this monthly um, newspaper that's on the Northeast Avalon, and so I, we actually, Patty, we've been this, the the generic general issue of light pollution. You know, students in my lab, we've been dealing with this for quite a while, 
uh, storm petrels, puffins, like you mentioned, uh, you know, horrific, um, you know, offshore lighting uh, on the the offshore platforms. All these places that were traditionally dark and we've lit up has huge consequences for birds, but, you know, also huge consequences for us. So overall, Patty, in the big scheme of things, there has to be regulation about, you know, controlling the amount of light that goes up into the atmosphere that serves no function um, other than to distort the atmosphere. So we need that kind of regulation. And, you know, that's happening in cities across Canada and cities in U.S. and Europe. And, you know, we have the opportunity. I mean, uh, here, I mean, I wrote to the mayor and town council a couple of weeks ago to just have a discussion about this. And, um, it, it's just important. We have to, otherwise, we're just going to be behind. And uh, the last thing I just want to mention about this, because it's so obvious to everybody, is we're now switching to these LED lights, which are almost, you know, they're almost like sun sun lamps, or, you know, they're just so brilliant. And so now that technology is just lighting up everything in ways that we this just didn't exist, you know, ten years ago. So. Big, big, big issues. Yeah, and it seems, and I I believe the first sentence in your article was, it sounds a little unusual to talk about light as a form of pollution. Some years back, someone put me on to an organization, I'm pretty sure it's called darksky.org, and their international group talking about light pollution. Before we get into the specifics, whether it be the outer battery or birds being lured to shore up at the southern shore and or the lights on the offshore platforms, what have you, what are some of the effects of light pollution? Some of them are a little bit... Oh, I don't know if it's esoteric, but it's, you know, it washes out the starlight and that kind of stuff, which is a concern. But what exactly would be some of the impacts on humans regarding light pollution? Yeah, and Patty, I, I just want to say I'm not the, you know, the best person to talk about this. Uh, and there are other people, uh, people in my department at uh, at Munn. But, I, you know, we, you know, basically, well, here's the bottom line. We evolved, like all life on the planet, with a day-night cycle. So, you know, our internal clocks, are, you know, our circadian rhythm, what they call that, our internal clocks are kind of adjusted to a day-night cycle. And when we distort that, um, it has all kinds of, you know, and there's, you know, all kinds of implications. And you can hear all all kinds of things like, uh, you know, lack of sleep, disruption of sleep. And there's the hormone, a, a sleep, uh, you know, associated hormone called melatonin. And the more we have light, and in particular blue wavelengths of light, uh, it, it, uh, it suppresses that melatonin. And then what happens is that, you know, sleep's disrupted and, uh, you know, all of those kind of things that we maybe don't pay attention to. And there are more, you know, more compelling kind of associations out there with diseases and, and lack of, uh, you know, lack of dark, uh, it, you know, to live in dark, to sleep in dark. And um, so all the huge implications and, and, and we do have to pay attention to it. I think the one thing I would say, Patty, the easiest solution, you know, it, it's tough in some ways, but the requirement is, you know, the request would be just get rid of the extraneous light that doesn't do any good. You know, a street light is there to light up the street, but if it goes up, over, you know, over the top of the street light, it, it serves no function. And, it, and that that's what we would call light pollution. Yeah. 
You know, it goes on, and they'll talk about the impact on human health regarding sleep disorders. There's even some relations I see, based on the research that people have sent me and that I've read, regarding diabetes and depression. Of course, when your sleep cycles are interrupted, it can manifest itself in a form of uh, depression. But it also has a distinct impact on ecosystems. So whether it be birds or otherwise. And then you can add to it, you know, we're wasting a lot of energy by lighting up a sky that doesn't need to be lit. That's absolutely right, Patty. And that, that also makes the solution a little bit simpler because it's, it's an energy savings, it's an economic savings, it, you know, it reduces emissions. You know, it's got everything going for it except just being lazy and lighting everything up, which has not very much going for it. No, not particularly. So, you know, we have all sorts of uh, tools to measure luminescence or the decibels coming from a motorcycle or a car exhaust pipe. So in the, in the solution world, there's always going to be some lights. Like you mentioned, there's going to be backyard spots and there's going to be street lights and there's going to be lights at the top of skyscrapers and stuff. I mean, how do you start to control this without, I don't even know if the proper phrase is, without going too far or interrupting just very normal course of illumination. So where do we start? What do we do? Yeah, well, it does take regulation, you know, so some very simple things like I've, I've experienced this uh, once or twice in Europe. You can you can have light on demand systems, for example. You know, the, we've been in situations, you know, walking or driving and, and I don't remember where some European cities when the street light actually activates when it when there's people there, when there's a car there. But, you know, maybe if there's nobody there from uh, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., that light doesn't have to be glaring all that time. So there are real simple regulations, and, and they're starting to be put in, um, you know, in cities. So it's not outside the box. There can be limitations on intensity of light. Um, so th- it takes regulations, and, and that's why, I mean, even when I – you know, because I don't feel like I'm the world's expert on this. We just deal with it a lot. But, you know, even when I wrote to the council, it was, well, let's just have the discussion. It's a problem. And let's just look at it. And exactly your question, well, what can we do? Well, there's a lot of things we can do. But unless we understand what the problem is and recognize it, we're probably not going to do anything. And, you know, not to be too highfalutin about it, but you know, there's also a lot of research that goes on at night regarding atmospheric-related matters that are impacted by this kind of stuff. So anyway, it's not to get too carried away with things that I have no earthly idea exactly how they work, but those are the considerations that have to be involved, not just the frustrations of someone living in the, in the outer battery and or the puff and rescue crew up the southern shore, because I think there's bigger implications. And this is not nanny state stuff. This is in collective best interest. If we're talking about negative impact on health, uh, energy waste, economic impacts, so so, again, this is not, you know, the government telling me what I can and cannot do it every time I turn my head. We're talking about what's needed, what's required, what's not, and what's ex- what's extravagant to the point of accomplishing nothing. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, Patty, uh, I hope you want to go there. We should talk about the outer battery situation. We can, absolutely. I was just trying to say yeah. that it's not just that. It's other examples. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think that's the big issue, you know. And I think we actually have a different issue well, it is in some sense similar because the brilliance of that light could burn out your redness, it looks like, and obviously a health threat. But worse than that, it, it, it's weaponizing light. You know, it's it's using light as an intimidation, a bullying, a harassment, and that's that's its sole purpose. It's, it's an assault on the people in the outer battery. 
So what, from my perspective, is absolutely shocking is that the mayor can say his hands are tied and that the council can all agree with that and say that, well, just untie your hands. I mean, it, it seems to me that the first responsibility of a mayor, of a town council, is to protect their citizens. And if they can't do that, well, let's forget about, you know, regulations for light. This this is a, you know, physical harassment assault, and they should just be able to deal with it instead of, you know, the, taking, what, you know, essentially a Pontius Pilate routine and saying, our hands are tied. Well, untie them. And, and Patty, I, I just want to mention, people online, you know, on social media are coming up with some pretty creative suggestions. They they saw, you know, Colin Way, you know, putting up more lights to aim at somebody else's house who presumably he doesn't like. And and somebody said, well, hey, look at the wiring. He's got like, like an extent. Doesn't he need a city permit for that wiring? It looks like he's got an external extension cord, you know, or whatever. I mean, this, you know, there's a lot of ways to deal with this issue. So I don't know. I I would find I find it exasperating for the citizens. And John Abbott offered, uh, you know, this is incredible. You know, so John Abbott offers a possible solution with the provincial government, and and Ron Ellsworth takes you know 15 minutes to say how that would take too much time and how it's really not. You know, we can't use 377 code to deal with this, but yet at the same time offers no constructive solution. Oh, we can't do anything. Well, if you can't do anything, what are you there for? You know, I don't get it. Well, to, uh, you know, maybe this is a bit of a side note, but at the same time where they can't do anything about that, and this has a relationship with light as well, they were quick to tell us what I can and cannot do with personal fireworks, you know. <laughs> That's, I know it can happen, Patty. It can happen. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the time this morning, Bill. Thanks for this. Oh, oh thank you, Patty. Uh, good to talk to you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Bye. Dr. Bill Montevecchi. His piece is in the Northeast Avalon Times January edition. Today is the day, and the time has just uh, recently passed, for the folks represented by the Teamsters, the 100 paramedics and ambulance operators as to what was going to happen with their overwhelming uh, vote to indeed take job action, what that looks like. We're going to hear from Hubert Daw. He's the business manager at the Teamsters local. And Matthew, appreciate your patience. He's back in the queue to talk about that basic income all-party committee. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the business manager at Teamsters local, 855. That's Hubert Daw. Hubert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Where are we? I wish I was calling you with good news this morning. That's a little over an hour ago. We finished our uh, strike committee meeting as a whole, and I've been given a mandate that as of 12 o'clock this afternoon, all services that are in strike position will walk off the job. So that's uh, seven different operations, all employed by Bob Fuhrer, who nobody's been able to get to and get any comment from. So exactly what happened, actually, before I get to exactly what happens today, I've been told by someone in the area down in Twillingate that there was a request for emergency transfer. It was denied because the union apparently told a paramedic not to do it, which would have been what happens today. But do you know anything about that circumstance in Twillingate? Um, we, part of our work to rule up to this point is that the primary ambulances, which are designated as the emergency ambulances for your community, we made them known to the employer that these ambulances would not be doing secondary or routine runs. So the the, uh, the health authority in the area yesterday originally called in for a routine run for a patient. 
the Secret Authority was told that we didn't have an ambulance available. Uh, within a short period of time, that patient was reclassified to what they call an emergency transfer. Now, we don't have that designation in the ambulance service agreement or in any of our contracts, but it's, it's a term that they use to try to emphasize that it is serious for this patient to be transferred. Uh, the, the employer, if he had reached out to one of our dispatchers, the dispatchers, our ambulances, which is what's supposed to happen, would have been told that, no, that doesn't meet our criteria for, for sending a primary ambulance. Uh, he chose to use a non-Teamster uh, dispatcher to contact the service, and the uh, medic, you know, she, she followed our protocols, or our, our, our guidelines, sorry, that we have laid out for the work to rule. Um, she was initially denied information about the call, but as she, as she pushed, she did get the information eventually. And uh, this, this in you know, based on based on the surface and, and the information that was presented at the time, this was not an emergency call, and uh, it, it should the employer should never have accepted the call. He set the medic up to to uh, to be investigated by our regulatory body, and he did make sure that he did contact the regular regulatory body to file a complaint for this person complying with the same regulations that we've used since we went off the last Wednesday. Fairball. Okay, so come 12 o'clock today, the actions take place. And just to remind our listeners, exactly what does that entail? As, as of noon, uh, for the, serv- the seven services that are affected, there will be absolutely no ambulances available. For anything? For anything. We, we, we tried to set up a system where we would do an escalating strike you know, gradually reduce services to minimize impact on the public. But when the employer pulled this stunt yesterday and reported one of our members for investigation for complying with the the procedures that we've we've, we've laid out for for our escalating strike, it left us with no choice but to to take action. And, you know, this has to come to a head. He's... uh, that's the second time now that he's he's uh, he's reached out to use government resources to strike bust. Last week we faced a false accusation of not having PPE when we were on the ambulances under our direction. Uh, the employer has no morals, and the fact that he would go after a young girl who's young, who's new in her career and put her in a position where she could potentially lose her license is is, is unconceivable. And the, you know we we were facing a shortage. We've been telling we've been saying we're facing a shortage. And for the employer to you go after this this individual, and I, I won't make it personal, but he, he would it didn't matter who it was. Somebody was going to somebody was going to face his wrath here, just so he could he can exert his dominance in in the workforce. This covers a pretty wide swath. These seven operations, uh, all the way from Fogo Island on the northeast coast to Trapassi on the southern shore. So, if I'm in one of those areas covered by these seven fewer owned and operated paramedic services, nine one one, and what happens then? You see, you call 911. Uh, Minister Osborne announced last week that he does have a plan in place that if we were to take this action, uh, apparently he has the resources to be able to handle the situation. Can you help me understand that, Hubert? Because, you know, I saw your comments on it. If the regional health authorities actually have additional resources, how come they haven't been employed, given all the concerns offered by the paramedics, Rodney Goody, you and others? So there's no such thing as a back pocket paramedic. So do you have any idea what he's talking about, the ability to activate additional resources? Patty, I, I don't, and I, I, I've, I've asked the question. Uh, nobody, nobody seems to want to give me an answer on that or what the, what the actual answer is to that. Uh, the services that neighbor 
the, our, our communities that, that, are, that are going to be affected by these services have reached out. They've told us there's no way we're going to be able to, to, to offset the, the, the gap caused by you going on strike. But the minister seems to think that uh, this, is, this is not a big deal. 120 people going off the road, 35 ambulances coming off the road. Uh, yeah, we can handle that. I, and I'm just really looking forward to see what the solution is going to be. What are proposed solutions? Because if Mr. Fewer is unwilling to speak with me, for instance, and or mm-hmm. to get back to the table, we know the government spends just shy of $8 million on these services. doesn't include a bunch of things, patient fees, mileage, what have you. Mm-hmm. So where does a solution lie? Is it all with Mr. Fewer, or do we need the provincial government involved here? Because sometimes job action and the province are not a great mix, but we're talking about first responders here, and the government's already got one foot under the cover with the amount of money they spend on these services. So where to next? Yeah, you know, and uh, we've had this discussion before. I, you know, I know the government is trying to wash their hands, saying it's a private contract. But I mean, as I've as I've been quoted to say before, at the end of the day, the provision of health care for the people of this province is the government's responsibility. I, uh, you know, in Minister Haggy one time equated it to buying staples from Staples. They don't tell Staples how to run their business. Well, when it comes to the provision of ambulance services, there's a very detailed contract as to what the employer can do, cannot do, the way that they have to do that. I mean, I think there's actually four four volumes of of directives from different departments of the government that detail how ambulance services are are supposed to be uh, provided. You know, Bob Fiore is is a private operator. I I don't deny that. But he is only doing the administration for the government to provide their mandate of making sure that there are ambulances available for rural Newfoundland and Labrador. I, I know the government wants to wash their hands so they don't want to be involved with it, but unfortunately we're at the point now where, you know, it, it's obvious the employer has no intent on negotiating. He's hoping this is going to go away. The medics are extremely frustrated. They, they, they feel very disrespected both by the employer and the government in this situation. And, uh, you know, they, they felt that, you know, this morning that, you know, based on what happened yesterday and what, we, what we've experienced up to this point over the last few years, and I'm being generous when I say few years, that we're sorry, we, you know, and I do apologize to the people of this province, but we don't see any other way of getting our issues addressed and, you know, ensuring that, in, you know, at the end of this, there will be ambulance services in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. I guess we'll see how quickly anybody reacts or responds here, including Mr. Fuhr, including the minister responsible, or possibly the premier, because when 911 is dialed, we all have this thought in our minds that help is coming, help is on the way. Even if we have delays and, you know, there's long uh, trips to bring patients to uh, the hospital and offload them and all the rest of it, but we do think help is coming. But this afternoon, that worry has now been stoked a little further than it has been in the past. I appreciate the update to you, but as much as it's not the one we wanted to hear or you wanted to offer, but stay in touch if there's any movement. I will. Thank you very much for your time, Patty. Appreciate yours. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hubert, he's the business manager, uh, Teamsters Local 855. That is huge. I mean, that's actually unbelievable that it's come to this. Man. Let's take a break. When we come back, Matthew, you're next, and then we're going to talk with uh, Kevin Andrews about some issues that we all, unfortunately, may fall prey to. And that's nefarious emails and malware on your computers and all those types of things that have become so much uh, more commonplace these days, so we need to be more and more aware. Both of those calls, then you, right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three. Matthew, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how's it going? Very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, best kind. Um, 
Gosh, man, it's hard to follow up with that last call. Wow. But the ambulance. Oh, yeah, I was trying to think, what's the last Ooh. call? Yeah, that's a dire situation. You dial 911, yeah. and if you're in any of those communities between Fogo Wild and all the way to Trapassi, no one's coming. That's really something. I thought, like, from yesterday, I just thought it was the work-to-rule thing, you know, where they're doing, you know, just the basics. But it, it was. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's escalated, as Mr. Dawes said, because of what yeah. he says is the behavior and the allegations made by Bob Fewer, the employer. So it's gone a long way from we're not doing some secondary responsibilities to we're not reacting at all. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I guess I'll get on with my topic. Uh, I don't mean to take away from that super important topic, but um, I was calling in a bit of basic income. I heard you talk about a few calls ago. Yep. Uh, I didn't catch all the conversation. Uh, was that about uh, a federal implementation or a provincial? There was a, a consensus vote in the House of Assembly here provincially where all 40 members voted to simply strike an all-party committee to look at the concept, to bring in people to talk about it, whether it be advocacy groups or a national voice as to what it might look like, what are some of the hurdles, and then bring recommendations back to the House of Assembly. So we're simply at a committee stage. I see. Okay. Uh, Well, I I still want to talk about it anyway, because there are some points there that um, the person you were talking to brought up. uh, You know, it it seemed like he was looking for more of a a targeted thing, you know, and uh, I I don't think I heard the word universal. And I think the problem with that is that if you just start giving it to some people, it's going to create divisions, like, you know, societal divisions. Uh, Like, I'm sure... You know, you've heard, and I've definitely heard people around say, <clears throat> sorry, you know, oh, the indigenous people are getting this and that. They get everything. I'm not saying I'm not one of those people. I'm, I'm not like that. No, but I've just heard people talk about such things, right? So, and, of course, some of those are based on uh, treaties and land claims and uh, oil industry presence. So I think there's a bit of a different flair to that, even though some of it is fairly disgraceful. But I think that's yeah. based on historical issues versus what we're seeing the reality today of so many people unable to afford almost anything. Like, I don't know how people make ends meet, to be honest with you, but some of the monies that I hear coming in the door. So I think they're yeah. kind of two different things, but I think it's an important consideration. If we add up the value of all the social safety net programs and boutique tax cuts and otherwise, it would add up to the, in this province alone, hundreds of millions, if not into the one billions, uh, the billions. So, you know, how we spend money, where it gets targeted, what the hopeful outcome is and how to measure it, is a way better idea than simply uh, looking down our nose at it and thinking that it's a problem that can't be solved and everyone's lazy or everyone's stupid. That kind of talk has just got us at a standstill. So evaluating evaluating what might work better is probably a better idea. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, j- just to make sure uh, I'm, I'm clear on that last point is that, you know, I'm afraid that if it's going to be not universal, you know, people are going to say, well, gee, buddy over there gets that money and I don't. And all he's doing is sitting at home. You know, it, everyone's got to get it. And I think that in order for everyone to get it, it it's going to have to be a federal thing. Because I, I think that they're going to have to, you know, just cut EI. EI should just go. All these support programs should just go and just be replaced by the universal basic income. Because think of all the administration costs of all these different programs. Just shut them all down. Roll all that money into the UBI. Right. And then that, that's part of what help, will help us afford it. And, you know, in addition to, you know, I'm, I'm sure I, I can't speak specific. So I'm sure there's loopholes out there for, you know, the richest people in Canada to avoid paying taxes. So close those. 
Well, I mean, if we did that and that alone, there'd be so much more money available for whatever program, whatever piece of infrastructure that we would have solved a lot of problems simply with that and that alone. But, you know, yeah. inside basic income, the universality of it, whether it be with people on disability or current social assistance recipients or income support or seniors, I mean, these all have to be carefully understood and addressed. But then I think the keys for me is there's got to be incentives to work. There does. There has to be incentives to work. And in addition, and not to be stereotypical, but there's got to be comprehensive harm reduction policies so that the money going out the door is to improve your life, not to make it worse. And people know what I'm talking about, whether it be mental health and or addictions. If we don't incorporate all of those, then we might be setting ourselves up for some disaster. Because you look back to the 1970s in Manitoba, in Dauphin, Manitoba, they had Dauphin dollars. It came out with great results for lifting people out of impoverished lives, but it also came with the dark side of an increased number of people now dealing with an addiction. So, you know, I get it, and I don't like to talk about that. Like, everybody who's going to get this money is going to go spend it immediately at the VLTs or on drugs, but we've got to make sure those policies are, are there in conjunction with any pragmatic approach to money in people's hands. Um, yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with what you're saying there. But, like, you know, there are going to be people who are going to get UBI or, you know, whatever it's called when hopefully this happens. There are going to be people who aren't going to work. And, but you know what? Like, so what? I mean, why is it that, you know, all – it seems like society is, like, hell-bent on, like, you got the work, you know? And if, if you don't work, if you don't contribute to society, then, you know, you know what? You shouldn't, you shouldn't have shelter and food. That, that that's what you know some people seem to think I, i'm not saying you i'm just saying well i don't some people. Yeah. no no I'm, I'm not saying that yet. <laughs> but you know I, i've heard that you know not in those exact terms but some people think like if you don't if you don't work then you know if, if you starve well that's your own fault yeah, I, I think I, encouragement encouragement to get into the workforce so is positive for everybody in society including the people who would be targeted with those approaches whether it be the pilot project now launched in the province for youth <clears throat> receiving income support some exemptions for additional learnings and or a basic income there's ways it can work but there's ways that it can simply be the political put your wet finger in the air see which way the wind's blowing and because that's never been a good idea it's never had a good outcome so we've got to be very careful with how this gets instituted not to say it's a bad thing because if people are being honest with themselves the amount of money we spend in social safety net stuff in this country albeit critically important it's probably so disjointed and there's so many convoluted programs and overlaps and uh, uh, overlaps and confusion that we're probably not doing the best we can you know, and I don't yeah. think there's an argument to be said that, well, status quo is working perfectly because it's obviously not. So, you know, looking at what options are out there, whether it be basic income, universal or otherwise, is just an exercise in examining what we can do to maybe get better outcomes because some of the outcomes we see with the numbers of people going to food banks or those living in poverty, there's a direct unfortunate relationship with more interactions with the healthcare system, more interaction with the criminal justice system. And the two most expensive things in Canada is a night in jail or a night in the hospital. To avoid or to bring down the numbers of folks in that circumstance is a good thing on every front, no matter if yeah. you're a liberal, conservative, NDP or green, socialist, communist, marijuana party, rhino party, doesn't matter. If we do better there, we do better, period. Uh, last word goes to you before I have to go to the break. 
All right, so just to sum things up, uh, I believe in a universal basic income, not a targeted thing. Uh, universal will not create the divisions in society that we see now. Uh, we need to close tax loopholes and just you know tax the wealthiest just a little bit more. Even that tax, even the closing of loopholes will pull in enough money to hopefully mostly fund it, but there are other things. Uh, also, keep in mind that um, you know not everyone's going to work, and that's be, that's okay. They're not going to work in the traditional sense, like going into an office Monday to Friday kind of thing. But you know they might be home taking care of a loved one, something like that. Something that right now they can't get paid for, or they might just sit home and make art. You know, contribute to society in that way. So just don't, you know, don't jump on people who you think just are lazy and don't want to work because they might be contributing to society in other ways. Appreciate the time, Matthew. Thank you. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly, this is from a uh, municipal leader, and he says, Hi, Patty, in your follow-up comment with the next caller following Hubert Daw, you made a blanket statement to the extent that the pending Teamsters job action impacted the area from Fogo Island to Trapassi. You know that this is not accurate. There are other services operating in this geographical area that are not part of this job action. Please don't create unnecessary fear in residents. I have no interest in doing anything of the sort. The fact of the matter is the fewer operations do indeed cover a portion of the swath between Fogo Island all the way to Trapassi. There are pockets of that area that are not uh, serviced by fewers, but some of those areas absolutely are. So I understand your point, Wayne, and happy to ensure that we're not stoking or fanning the flames of fear because I have zero interest in that. If you're not serviced by a fewers ambulance uh, operation, then you're not impacted by this Teamsters action. Break time, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to Kevin Andrews. He's a technology teacher, computer systems administrator, and experienced podcaster and blogger on the latest digital trends, and he joins us on 10. Kevin, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad. How about you? Not too bad. So, yeah, so thanks for having me on. You know, even though we just started this new year, I, I really have to say that I've been inundated with tweets and, and posts and emails uh, from people having all kinds of uh, malware-related issues, like like you mentioned earlier, you know. Even though we've kind of 2023 has just started, it really does seem like this is a year of malware for, for some reason. So, you know, I, I thought this might be a good time and the right platform to sort of talk a little bit about what it is, how people can get affected, and I think most importantly, how sort of to protect against it, right? So, so you know, it, I mean, every year the medical community campaigns uh, for everyone to get a flu shot, well, you know, that's because I guess flu outbreaks typically have a season. Uh, you know, a time when they start spreading and infecting people. Well, if you think of that and you compare that then to viruses and, and malware in the computer, then uh, there is no flu season. It's, it's pretty much the whole year long. So, you know, when, when you think of it that way, you really got to keep in mind, you really got to be careful in terms of what you're doing online type of thing. So, you know, uh, for, for anyone who's really heard the term but not quite sure what it is, you know, malware would be sort of considered like malicious software. It's essentially sort of an umbrella term that describes any really malicious program or, or piece of computer code that really becomes harmful to any type of technology and, and so that, you know, the users will download that and install that on their computer and as a result then, you know, they, they get infected. And it could be adware, it could be viruses, it could be spyware, and, and also ransomware. And so I think, you know, the ultimate goal for malware is to really invade, you know, to damage, to disable computers and computer systems and, and networks and tablets and mobile devices. Really, you know, often by taking partial control over a device's operation, and, and I'm sure, you know, one of those goals was behind the cyber attack on our healthcare system as well, right? So, you know, it seems as if they're, you know, they're pretty tight-lipped about 
the exact details, but uh, suffice it to say, I would think that, you know, it, it comes down to probably malware or spyware or, or probably a virus or something. So, you know, if, if, if you want to use technology um, and, and you're online, um, then you, you really got to pay mind to, uh, to viruses and spyware for sure. You do. I mean, we do uh, cyber training here like all the time for the obvious yeah. reasons. We're a tech-reliant re company. So some of it comes down to some pretty, I guess, common sense, though. You know, be very suspicious of almost every single email you get with a link that you don't recognize or an address you don't recognize or a pop-up asking you to do some upgrade or to download new software. You know, you can always keep your computer updated with the appropriate software updates, but it's, is it not as simple as just being extremely cognizant of emails coming in? Because you can allow a Trojan horse in simply by clicking a link and then realize you did something wrong and a second later it's too late. Yeah, you know, as the old saying goes, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? So I, I think definitely in this case, you know, when it, when it comes to uh, trying to protect yourself, and definitely avoid clicking on links and attachments that, uh, that don't look right or look suspicious or spelled incorrectly and stuff like that, right? I mean, cyber criminals do a really good job right now of tricking people into clicking on links supposedly from their bank or the telecoms or a gas company or something like that. So first thing I always say to people is always think before you click, you know, and that means looking, like I said, for spelling errors, an email address that doesn't really seem right, or an out-of-date, or uh, maybe someone who's uh, sending you an email that you haven't heard from in a long time, right? Sometimes it, it's not really from that person. Oh, absolutely. I got one from a buddy of mine uh, a couple of months ago. said, uh, how you doing? Long time, no talk. We should catch up. And I thought, that's sort of a strange email to get from yeah, this guy right. that I've known yeah. for 45 years. Yeah, for sure, right? You know, uh, they also say, too, you know, passwords are really the key to your digital kingdom. And sort of the next thing I usually tell people is, you know, without a mind, without a mind you really want to avoid using any easy generic passwords, too, right? So, you know, look back. Uh, if you're looking back now at the most common passwords for last year, uh, the word password, the word monkey, and the number one, two, three, four, five, six were the top three giveaways for hackers. So if anyone's using any of those passwords, I'd highly recommend changing those today. Yeah, I mean, it's always the way. And limit your file sharing as well. And because if the Meditech system can be hacked in and the Pentagon can be hacked and Marriott Hotels and up and down the line, I mean, you don't have to be Graham Ivan Clark to infiltrate Twitter and the Bitcoin scam. You yeah, can just sure. be Joe Blow sitting in Moscow trying to get into my own personal email account. So, anywho, last word goes to you, Kevin. Yeah, no, you know, it's, um, uh, it's really important, I think, and people to be diligent about, uh, about the passwords that they use and, and the information they give out, and especially on social media. Social media is really another place now where hackers are really focusing their attention. So, you know, even though it's a person that's posted something that you may know, uh, I'd still be wary of what they're posting, and if there's a link there, be very careful of that as well. Appreciate this, Kevin. Good advice. No problem. Thanks for having me. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, final word goes to line number five, the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Craig, you're on the air. Patty, good morning to you. Uh, I will talk fast. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I was in the queue waiting to talk to you about poverty reduction until I uh, heard uh, Mr. Dahl on, and, and we're looking at now the ambulance or the absence of ambulance services. Uh, you coined the word unbelievable. Uh, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we wouldn't have services on the Bonamista Peninsula, and I'm most intrigued when uh, when he had said that um, Minister Osborne has said that they have the resources to handle the situation. Uh, 
I would think it's practically impossible, and to what standard would that be? And if it is, now is the time to disclose what that would be and to put the people's minds in the district of Bonavista and those others in the province that would be affected as to what is the this plan that he has. And one thing I just want to pass on in, in the data, Patty, uh, if uh, at one time previous, we talked about the Canadian triage acuity scale. Everyone is graded when they go to a hospital to an emerge. In Bonavista, every 2.3 days, there's level one or level two that would present uh, themselves at the emerge in Bonavista. Level one is resuscitation. You can't breathe. You know, you obviously need that is the highest level, level one. Level two is emergent, and that's where heart attacks would fall in every 2.3 days. So closing the emergency room at the, uh, in Bonavista creates a whole lot of anxiety. It affects people's mental health. And now on top of this, to think about the ambulances service. And the last thing I would say, Paul Din, our, our, uh, at one caller, probably the last call uh, that he made into your show, had talked and said that government was reactive, not proactive. And I would think here is another example. Yeah. You know, to what level government gets involved is the tricky one here because we kind of need them out of labor relations, but government is in bed here. It's almost $8 million going to that operation, so they have an immediate, not only concern as the government and what it means for the lack of ambulance service in some of these communities, but they've got money in here too, so they've got every reason to get involved. And, Patty, if the current agreement that they have is not meeting the standard and there's problems with it, then government is very much involved with it. And they, they've sure. got a lot to be able to step in and to be able to mediate. So I would call upon now, and I know it's late in your show with, with only a minute or less left, but I would say uh, we haven't heard from Minister uh, Davis, the Minister of Labor, and we really need to hear from either him or Minister Osborne as to where we are now. And not in an hour's time, but I, I think we need to hear from them immediately. Well, the best I could do was Monday, and we'll try to have both. Good stuff. Appreciate Thank the time, you, Craig. Thank, okay, bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. All right, Poof, oh, we're out of time. Good show today, good shows this week, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.